It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation... uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. A video clip showing a tense moment on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial went viral over the weekend. In it, we see a group of students from Covington Catholic, an all-boys high school from Covington, Kentucky. Many are wearing red Make America Great Again hats, and they appeared to some to be taunting an older man who was beating a small drum and singing a Native American chant. Let's listen. So this happened on Friday as people were gathering for two events in Washington, D.C., the March for Life and the Indigenous People's March. The short video sparked a furor on social media. Since then, longer videos have provided fuller context, and there have been conflicting narratives about what led to this confrontation. The man at the center of all of this who is singing in the video we just heard is a Native American activist and an elder from the Omaha Nation named Nathan Phillips. And he is in our studios in Washington this morning. Mr. Phillips, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. So can you tell me how you came face-to-face with these students? I was uh, found myself on the National Mall here in D.C. and while we were at finishing up our Indigenous Peoples uh, March and Rally, um, there was uh, two groups of um, folks there mm-hmm. that were um, having problems with each other. And it got to a point where 
one of my nephews said, uh, Uncle, we got to do something. Can I just, I want to just make sure our listeners understand. I mean, there was this group of, of high school students, as I mentioned, and then um, I gather that this other group you're talking about is the some members of the black Hebrew Israelites. I mean, they, they're a group who believes America's emancipated slaves or God's chosen people. Some of them are known to use offensive slurs against many different groups. Who, who were they? Because it sounds like some of these students from Kentucky felt that these remarks were directed at them. Well, when they first set up the black Israelites, they were the uh, March life was still going on. And it was after the March for Life ended is when all these young people started saying what they say. And I was in between the two groups, and that's when I started with the drum, an instrument to um, talk to God with. That's what we use that drum for. And try to bring peace, it sounds like. In the moment, I didn't realize what I was trying to do or, or if I should be doing anything, and when we were going to hit those drums, uh, there was no intention of getting between the two groups. It looked in the video like these students started surrounding you after you approached them. And and I'm wondering if, like, why you decided to walk up to them and, and actually, it looked like face them, you know, not face these other protesters, the black Hebrew Israelites, but face these students from Kentucky. I, I'm wondering what was happening for in the moment. I was... Um... Um, well, I guess maybe it was a a, a, a way of, of protecting them. You felt you were protecting the black Hebrew Israelites from these these students from Kentucky. Well, see, that wasn't so much that I, I was protecting anybody, but I was coming between something that I had been witnessing, you know, on the news, in on the Facebook racism. Because... Hmm. You got to understand, I came from an indigenous people's gathering, and it was full of prayer, full of promise of a better tomorrow. You know, that's that was the message we was putting out. I want to be so careful with what you're yes, saying, and and, yes. and, and 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 forgive me for 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 just really being 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 very careful. You, you mm-hmm. said you had seen things on the news. Um, are you saying that that based on a lot of what has happened in our country recently, you you were under the impression or making an assumption that, that, a, that a large group of young white men might threaten a minority who you saw and, and that you saw this group of black Israel, Hebrew Israelites as potentially in danger by this, this large group of white men based on what you had seen in the news in, in our country in, in recent months and years. Yes. Thank you for that clarity because that's, that's what it was in my mind and in my heart because when I seen those those young men, I was seeing their faces. And the thing is, is that those young men could have chose to not feed into those guys, those Israelite fellers. They could have chose the, the, the students' teachers, the students' chaperones, could have instructed those students to exit that area, that this wasn't something that they needed to bring their high schools into and being involved in. Can I can I ask a question this way? Um, mm-hmm. How much of what you were feeling was based on an assumption that a large group of young white men um, were outnumbering a small group of, of black protesters and, and assuming that this could be very tense and, and there could be racism and how much of it was about things you were actually hearing well, the thing in, in is, this moment. yeah, the thing is that there was no assumption that there was a large group. 
there was a large group, and there was only four black men. Mm-hmm. So there, there's no assumption there. The young man who was standing in front of you has identified himself in a statement as Nick Sandman. And, um, you know, he said that he was intimidated by these other protesters you're talking about. Um, he said that, that he never felt like he was blocking you. He said that you didn't make any attempt to go around me, um, is the way he put it. And he said, quote, and this is about you, it was clear to me that he had singled me out for a confrontation, although I'm not sure why. What do you, what do you make of that? A young man trying to um, alter his story to make himself look good, maybe? I don't know. I just... Did he do anything to, to, to offend you? Well, it wasn't so much that... I read the, the statement that he put out. And for myself, I didn't want anything wrong or bad for the for the students, you know, the expulsions and, and like that. You know, that's, you don't want them to be punished for this. It wasn't well. Now that I've read the statement, I'm 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 kind of revisiting that. You know, it's not so much that I want punishment, but this young man has to come to some kind of understanding of 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 where he was at and what he what he did. In his statement, he said he he talked to his teacher who was acting as a chaperone to lead the chants to taunt the black guys. So he was one of the leaders of the chants of the taunting. And if, I mean, it, so, and of course, his statement, it, it, it sounds like a, a different picture. I mean, it's just well, it's see, so I'm, complicated. That, that I, is I the really... statement. That came from right his statement. Yeah. Um, there's so much more that, that we could talk about here. I, I wish mm-hmm. we had more time. Nathan Phillips uh, is co-founder of the Native Youth Alliance. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Ben. I am not prejudiced. Today we're hearing from the Catholic school student at the center of a much-discussed confrontation with a Native American activist. Nick Sandman is seen on video standing uncomfortably close to Nathan Phillips in a crowd of demonstrators at the Lincoln Memorial. He spoke with NPC, NBC's Today Show. As far as standing there, I had every right to do so. I don't, I, my position is that I was not disrespectful to Mr. Phillips. I respect him. I'd like to talk to him. I mean, in hindsight, I wish we could have walked away and avoided the whole thing. People have sharply different views of this event despite, or maybe because of, multiple video perspectives. Adam Benferrato was the author of the book Unfair, which argues that camera angles and our preconceived notions influence how we view video. He's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. When you started seeing the videos of this, was it clear to you who was in the wrong? Uh, it wasn't. And that's one of the things that's really challenging about camera perspective bias. When you're only offered one perspective, I think all of us tend to uh, view events and make attributions based on the shoes we're standing in. Um, and I think that the research that's been done in psychology, particularly in the suspect interrogation context where we put a camera behind the suspect and a camera behind the interrogator, really shows how powerful the frame matters. Oh, meaning that one angle can suggest one truth, another angle can suggest another truth. In this case, we have a teenager in a Make America Great Again hat who's standing really close to... Um, really close to this demonstrator uh, pounding a drum. What, what is the way that the framing or the, way, the place the video starts or the, the place the camera is, why would that change who we think is in the wrong there? 
Well, I think it's a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, that first video that we were shown, we don't have any context for it. We don't see the events leading up. We don't see the events afterwards. And so that can be powerfully biasing. I think the other thing here is we're really seeing things from Nathan Phillips' perspective. Um, and so we appreciate, right, what he might have been going through. But when we see that those later videos, which offer sort of a third-party perspective, it becomes a lot more clear that this was a much more complex set of interactions. Than, oh, that's than when what we, we learned that there were the Covington High School kids, there were the Native American demonstrators, but there were also these uh, black Israelites, black I believe, yep. uh, black Hebrews, who, 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 who were uh, casting insults and kind of intensifying the situation before that confrontation between the two. Exactly. Um, and I think the other psychological dynamic that's in play here is what's commonly referred to as cultural cognition. All of us see the world through tinted lenses, right? So we think that we're just getting reality exactly as it as it is going on. Um, but really, everything is being filtered by through our backgrounds, our experiences and our identities. And so if you're a Trump supporter, you see a very different set of events than if you say are uh, an avowed progressive. You know, I'm thinking the hat is crucial to this whole thing. If you see that hat and you think anybody who wears that hat is a racist or at least is comfortable with racist language that's been used by the president of the United States, that colors your opinion of anything that the kid in that hat might have done. I think that's exactly true. And and we see this all over in society, right? So the same uh, the same event, say a kneeling NFL player, right? I can watch that. My father-in-law, who's a Trump supporter, can watch that. We see completely different things. And that's because my lens is tinted by my research on racial bias and police brutality and the people that I grew up with. My father-in-law, who's in his 70s, has a very different set of experiences, watches very different shows. Uh, and those things matter. So this event might have been more complicated than people realized at first, but is, are you saying it's impossible to establish what the truth actually was? Well, I don't want to go that far. I think what, you know, the takeaway for me here is that we all need to slow down when we are approaching media uh, and we need to be more humble. I think we need to understand that what our gut tells us in the instant uh, is likely to be only part uh, of the story. Mr. Ben Ferrato, thanks so much. Thanks. Adam Benferrato is author of the book, Unfair. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. How do you feel about this, Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South. But I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. Segregation defines Chicago. So does the racial inequality that comes with it. As Chicago moves toward a big city election, candidates for mayor and aldermen are talking a lot about issues like schools, housing, and violence. But they don't often put race at the center of those conversations. A community group called Chicago United for Equity wants to change that. They're asking everyday residents to share their best ideas for making Chicago more fair for everyone. Then people will get to make their choices at one of the group's vote parties around the city. WBEZ's Natalie Moore dropped by a party underway on the north side. I'm the 
Fifteen people mill around with beer and cookies at the Logan Square Neighborhood Association, a storefront on North Milwaukee Avenue. This neighborhood is one feeling the pressures of gentrification and dwindling housing affordability. People here peer with interest at statistics written in fat red marker on big white sheets of paper. Cindy Soto sees a figure that reflects her life. Of Chicago Public High School graduates, 16% of Latinas finish college within 10 years. For white women, that percentage is more than twice as high. I'm the 16% of Latinas. That, it took me a long time to finance my own education, but I was fine waiting until I could graduate without a lot of debt. But. What does that mean when you look at your family? Well, actually, I'm the only one that has graduated college in my family, so I'm, they fall under the majority of Latinos that probably don't make it through for a multitude of reasons, financial being one of them. The white sheets around the room highlight other racial disparities among black, white, and Latino residents, such as African Americans are more likely to be stopped by the police. Homes owned by whites are worth more than those owned by blacks and Latinos. Chicago United for Equity, or Q, says disparities like these mean city leaders can no longer avoid race when they make policies or decisions. The group has had some success with that argument, including its efforts to stop Chicago public schools from closing a South Loop Elementary School serving mostly black students. Tonight's get-together is part of Q's experiment to get candidates running for city office to address racial inequities. Front and center. Nikita Brar is Q's executive director. She explains the process. So in part one, we ask people, like, what do you wish your alderman, your city council, or your mayor would do? What do you wish they would prioritize? What sort of reforms do you think we need in order for Chicago to eliminate some of the disparities that we see on these walls and more disparities that we don't see on these particular posters, right? Chicagoans have submitted almost 200 policy ideas so far. The suggestions get to the heart of who holds power and who controls how city dollars are spent. Should Chicago have an elected school board? Should the city spend tens of millions of dollars on a new police training academy? Should developers be charged high fees if they want to convert a two-flat apartment building into a single-family home? Should government adopt a racial equity lens in all decision-making? So now we're in phase two, and phase two is you actually look at these ideas and you decide which ones... And vote. Anyone can vote for their favorite ideas at parties like these, at other gatherings around the city, or online. The winning ideas will go to the mayoral and automatic candidates so they can respond. Then, in the end, their positions on those ideas will go into a brand new Chicago's Voter Guide for Racial Equity, all done before Election Day on February 26. Social worker Ashley Lattes is here because she's worried about housing affordability. Gentrification in Logan Square has displaced me, and it's displaced probably a lot of folks that are attending this party tonight. She opens her ballot. Have you looked at these? (laughs) They're they're incredibly difficult to choose between. But one directly relates to her experience. She likes the idea that would mandate communities with less than 10 percent of affordable housing to accept affordable housing. Cindy Soto submitted an idea. She wants a more inclusive participatory budgeting process making sure that it's reaching families that don't necessarily speak the language or working families that can't. I think the concept is wonderful, but it can be expanded 
Organizers are aiming for at least 5,000 voters to weigh in. The University of Illinois at Chicago will help tally the ballots. Voting continues through the end of the month. Natalie Moore, WBEZ News. Remembering Martin King. In the 20th century, few names, especially of black people, ring louder than that of Martin Luther King. His life, his dedication to the civil rights movement, and his martyrdom in April 1968 made him a global icon of social justice. Born in 1929, if he were not martyred, he would be enjoying his 90th year of life. But he was martyred, and too, he was considered an enemy of the state. Why? Because he didn't end his struggle at the March on Washington and his I Have a Dream speech wasn't his last word on the subject. His speech at Riverside Church, where he denounced the Vietnam War, capitalism, militarism, and racism, marked him as a man now walking the road of radicalism, albeit almost alone. He was denounced by major media and betrayed by his so-called allies in the civil rights movement like the NAACP. And because U.S. government and police considered him a communist, he was killed on April 4, 1968, a year to the date of his Riverside speech. He was on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the damned, the wretched of the earth. He was against materialism, greed, and capitalism. If you want to remember him, remember him. But as he really was an enemy of the state. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Only Local 10 News starts right now. Good evening. We begin tonight with an intense encounter caught on camera. A man hurling racial slurs at teenagers while holding a gun. And one of those teens speaking tonight about the threat, calling for more charges against that man. Local 10's Louis Aguirre is live in Miami with our top story. Louis. Lori and that man may indeed face more serious charges. Not only did he pull out his gun on those teens, which he did not have the proper permit for, by the way, he's also heard using the N-words several times during his profanity-laced tirade, and that means he could be looking at hate crime charges. A viral video of a heated confrontation on MLK Day that has now sparked a hate crime investigation. You guys, keep moving! All of it going down at 5.30 p.m. on the busy Brickle Bridge after this driver became enraged when this group of teens on bicycles were holding up traffic, protesting what they say is the affordable housing crisis in Miami's Liberty Square community, where a large private development is now being built. When these kids blatantly was racial profile. Um, a driver was irritated because they were fighting for a fair housing. First, Dana Scalioni got out and got into it. Then boyfriend Mark Bartlett came out holding a handgun and spewing ugly words. 
Miami police stopping Bartlett two miles up Biscayne Boulevard, arresting him and charging him for having a concealed weapon without a license, a third-degree felony. But after seeing the video, prosecutors are now considering a hate crime charge. If we're able to show that that's the case, then we'll take the appropriate action. The couple laying low today from home and her real estate office, but they did speak with local 10's Madeline Wright on the phone. Bartlett saying, quote, all I see is 15 people running across the street toward my girlfriend. I'm running to see and to protect my family. I had a gun, though. It wasn't loaded. I ran out there. You can see I never pointed it. I never threatened anybody. Scalioni says Bartlett used the N-word out of frustration and anger and that the incident has been blown out of proportion. But that's not how this group of teens see it, and they're now consulting with a civil rights attorney to possibly seek further action. Get away from our car. We were holding up signs for housing. That's all we were doing. And he told me, come, come, come to the car. And I was about to come, but as I seen him pulling out the gun, I turned around and started walking back towards the crowd. And tonight, the Dade State Attorney's Office says they have special prosecutors who will be investigating this case. And that means they'll be interviewing those teens that were protesting on the bridge. We're live in downtown Miami. Louis Aguirre, Local 10 News. This is Houston Matters. I'm Craig Cohen. State officials voted today to temporarily store a Confederate plaque removed from the Capitol earlier this month. The Texas State Preservation Board has decided to allow the public 90 days to comment on what should be done with the 1959 plaque, which incorrectly states secession from the Union was not a rebellion and that slavery was not the underlying cause of the Civil War. There are still close to two dozen Confederate symbols and monuments on the Capitol grounds. Such public displays are the subject of an upcoming lecture by Annette Gordon-Reed. She's a professor of law and history at Harvard Law School, and she's coming to town next month to speak at the University of Houston Law Center about the messages conveyed to the public by Confederate symbols and icons. Gordon Reed tells Houston Matters' Maggie Martin some of those messages are explicit, while others are a bit more hidden. The idea is how the symbols and plaques and statues and things that exist in public life, what messages that they send to members of the public, and how you deal with the fact that Confederate symbols and icons are problematic or actually hurtful or frightening in some ways to African-American members of the public. So what do we do about this? People think that this is a matter of history, that could be erased. But on the other hand, these are very, very public, in some instances, public monuments that speak to people today much more so than just commemorating history. I think it's important that when we talk about uh, Confederate symbols and monuments uh, and even uh, Confederate names that are tied to the Confederacy, it's important we have some historical context. 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 Looking at behavior and context context of how these monuments came to be and when these monuments came to be. Uh, can you give just a very briefly little bit of insight and background into how and where these, these monuments came from? 
Well, most of the monuments were put up in the early 20th century, not obviously around the end of the Civil War. And they were put up at a time when black people were attempting to assert their rights to find a place as American citizens in the United States. And these monuments were put up as a way of pushing back against those ideas. So they had a very, very definite current day for that time purpose. It really was not just about history. It was about sending a message to African-American people in the early 20th century. So they were political. These are political messages. And most of them were put up at a time when black people were not allowed to vote, so they would not have been participating in any kind of town meetings or local government meetings that deciding where these monuments were up. So this is much about contemporary politics, much more about contemporary politics than just history. How would you argue, uh, as you mentioned earlier uh, at this upcoming lecture, you'll be talking about the messages that these icons send to the public. How have those messages either changed or perhaps even stayed the same since they were erected and uh, in some cases even later than the early 20th century? Well, I think the messages are the messages of white supremacy in many instances that that's those kinds of things still remain to the extent that some people don't. <laughs> Many people don't know who these people are, but when people do know who they are, they are basically suggesting that the South will never change and that the values that were in place during the time of slavery and the aftermath and the, when the Redeemer governments came in and basically stopped the black vote, stopped black participation in political life, those monuments are ways of sending the message that those values still hold. And it's difficult because if you're trying to create a different type of society, a society that is inclusive of everybody, you know, what place do those kinds of monuments with those kinds of signals, what place do they have in society? Although many Confederate monuments and other symbols have been taken down, there are still still some around. Um, Until just very recently, there was a plaque honoring uh, the Confederate States um, of America in the Texas Capitol. Uh, It's been Mm -hmm. taken down now um, after the Texas State Preservation Board uh, voted to have it removed. That was very recently. Uh, How much does the location, do you think, not just the Confederate icon itself, uh, but the location of the symbol, the monument, or the name Do you think that matters in terms of the message that you're speaking about? Well, I think where it's placed matters a great deal. Anything on public property, anything that's supposed to be open to all the citizenry, uh, having a, a monument like that or a plaque like that that I think substantively basically said that slavery had nothing to do with uh, the Civil War, those are the most problematic things. Battlefields, you know, cemeteries, things like that are, are separate from a public square or a public university where everybody's supposed to be welcome. It's supposed to be a symbol of citizenship and all of the demands of citizenship. I think monuments in those places are particularly problematic, but certainly you know, to honor Confederate soldiers and, 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 uh, on battlefields or in cemeteries, things like that on private property, the people can do what they wish, but it's really about the public affirmation of the values of the Confederacy. You know, a couple of centuries after the Confederacy lost the Civil War, makes no sense. Now, from a legal point of view, how often do you see uh, Confederate symbols challenged in court today, and and where do courts sort of stand with these symbols? I think they're all over the map. I know in North Carolina, there's going to be a battle about 
Silent Sam on the campus of UNC. Other places they've been taken down. People have voluntarily decided to do it. It depends on how, you know, where the people, where the places are and how, well, I guess the politics of the particular area. But right now it's been much more of a discussion about the efficacy of doing this. We know that there was real recalcitrance about this, the flag, at least in South Carolina, until the tragic circumstances there where people were killed in the church. And at that point, there was a decision, actually it was taken down forcibly, but there was a decision made to, to, to leave it down, uh, to move it. So this is a political question that just hasn't been, I don't think has any sort of uniform way of solving. How close do you think we are, if if close at all, to reaching a national consensus or a national approach or law to these symbols? I don't think we're very close to a national uh, answer to this, mainly because states and most of the states of the Confederacy will be recalcitrant about on that question. Uh, I don't think... I don't see us having a national, anytime soon, and I could be wrong, a national law about it. This is something that's going to be fought out, I think, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, um, and people will be persuaded or not. But I'm hopeful that, you know, the, the things that have happened recently will provide a momentum for people to do things at the local level instead of saying that it has to be a blanket national thing, because that, I think that will cause resentment. Well, I know it will cause resentment and recalcitrance, and it will be fought for a long time. As I mentioned, although many Confederate monuments and other icons are being removed, some are actually going in the opposite direction. Here in Orange, Texas, for instance, there's a Confederate monument that's new. It was under construction as early as 2018. Why in 2019 do you think these Confederate icons are still here, are still pervasive? Well, because we're in a very volatile political time. There are many people who do not like the changes that we see in the direction of the country. All of the, I mentioned before about greater black participation in politics. I'm saying that as if that is uh, for people an unalloyed benefit. There are some people who have difficulty with that, with that concept. And, th- and just as in the 1920s, and um, these monuments went up as to sort of send a message. I think the same message is being sent by, you know, today with those new kinds of, of, um, of, of monuments. Think of all the things that have happened in America since that time that you could put up a monument to. I think this is about sending signals, just as it was in, in times past. As we talk about, uh, of course, what these monuments uh, meant when they were erected and what they mean today, how do you think the conversations surrounding Confederate icons are going to fit into the historical context going forward? I just think people are much more aware of what these monuments stood for. And if you have greater participation in the conversation, you have, and I'm trying to be hopeful here, a better chance of persuading people of the problem with having uh, these place, these monuments in public spaces, the message that they send about the nature of American citizenship, who's a citizen and who is not, um, the na- what they send, the message they send about the institution of slavery and the Confederacy's support of that. How can you support basically racially-based slavery and say that you view blacks as equal citizens. So I think 
this is one of those difficult questions that will have to be fought out in the political arena and through persuasion and persistence on the part of people who see that these monuments do not hold to, you know, are not in keeping with American values. I think people very often don't think about the fact that these monuments and the men who are on these statues and the flags and all those things flew against the United States of America. And if we want to go forward as one country, having those kinds of of symbols are ways to divide us rather than unite us. That's Annette Gordon-Reed, professor of law and history at Harvard Law School. She spoke with Houston Matters' Maggie Martin. Gordon-Reed will speak at the University of Houston Law Center next month. There's a link to more information at HoustonMatters.org. When when I spoke with you yesterday, um, you you shared uh, a few quick thoughts about uh, the film The Blind Side. Can you share with our audience, uh, I guess, your observations on that film? I just thought that was a terrific film. Uh, And the the part of that film that was so amazing was when Sandra Bullock is trying to describe to her friends, her friends, what she is, what, how she feels about having this young, non-white, non-female person in her home and their reaction to it. And when she got up and walked away, I thought, I've been where you're going. I thought it was just beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful film. Actor and producer Jada Pinkett Smith is expanding her on-screen presence. From the early 90s in a different world. Understand that I'm here just trying to get an education. I'd rather be here than out on the corner doing absolutely nothing, ending up with a city job. To the hit comedy Girls Trip. She's been all over TV and movie screens for decades. Now you can add laptop and smartphone screens to the list. Jada Pinkett-Smith is hosting Red Table Talk on Facebook Watch with her mother, Adrian Banfield-Norris, and her daughter, Willow Smith. We should mention Facebook is an NPR underwriter. This season, they've explored complex and emotional topics, mental health, racism, relationships, and yeah, even her own marriage to fellow superstar Will Smith. I was much more conscious of public perception than Jada. Yeah. Right? There was an idea I think I was trying to live up to an idea for him. Right. Jada Pinkett Smith joined me from our studios in New York, and she told me her desire to open up started with the candid conversation she was having with other women in her life. I was like, why don't we talk like this more often? (laughs) Like, why is it such a secret, like, (laughs) of what people go through. And so I was like, I I really want to create conversation where people don't have to feel like they're alone and whatever pieces individuals can take with them to make whatever changes they might feel is necessary for more happiness, more joy, more peace. I want to be part of that journey. But it does stand in such contrast. There will be many people out there who are like, I thought Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith, they're like these super private people. <laughs> yeah. So what was the decision to say, I'm going to put it out for millions of people to see and hear? People have a lot of romantic and, and fantasy ideas around relationships. And, you know, considering the the powerful journey that that Will and I have been taking together, I I really thought it was important to shatter 
you know, whatever facade had been out there. And now that I'm older and with all the work that I've done, I feel like I have the capacity to be more transparent. And luckily enough, so is my family. Yeah. So just because there's certain things that we talk about on the red table doesn't mean that we don't have um, boundaries. But I don't see the necessity to hold on to knowledge of certain experiences yeah. that we've had. We see the different generational perspectives at play in in all the episodes, but it was particularly notable, the episode with diversity educator Jane Elliott. Yeah. You and your mom uh, talk about growing up in different eras as mm -hmm. black women in this country. And the focus was really the dynamic between black women and white women. Mm -hmm. And your mom had had particular views on this. Your mom oh, admitted yeah. to having her own, as we all do, her own yeah. biases. Uh, yep, definitely. I remember um, growing up and not being able to go to downtown and, and try on hats. And we couldn't go to the bowling alley. And to get ice cream, we couldn't sit at the counter. It still bites. She had to experience very different things than what Willow and I have had to experience. Yeah. What's it like? Have, I mean, how old is Willow? Willow is 18 now. She's 18. Oh, man. <laughs> She's a young lady. And she brings her own wisdom. She does. I, I imagine you two seem very close anyway. But yeah. have there been things that are said at the red table? You're like, oh, I did not know <laughs> that that's where you were at on that. Um, the idea that... Even though Willow hasn't had the same experiences as my mother, um, that, that some of her views were, were pretty similar. They had this concept as if it's not our responsibility as women of color to educate white women, the idea being, well, they need to educate themselves. And that's true, too. But at the same time, I do believe that we as women of color have to have uh, a certain openness in having conversations to help white women understand our experience. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. But at the same time, I do believe that we as women of color have to have uh, a certain openness in having conversations to help white women understand our experience. So everywhere I go, there's a Jewish protest, and they say Farrakhan started the controversy. I don't say nothing. <laughs> I go to deliver a speech. You whoop up the people with the press. Firecon's a bigot. Firecon's a hater. Firecon is this. Firecon is that. You're talking with a double standard. If I talk to black people about what white folk have done to us, that's hate. If Jews talk to the world about what the Germans did to them, that's remembering. <laughs> 
Over the weekend, thousands gathered in D.C. and other cities as part of the annual Women's March, now in its third year. Organizers first built the march on a message of inclusivity, but they are now facing criticism from groups who claim they have been left out or pushed aside. Amna Nawaz has a closer look at the challenges of sustaining a modern political movement. Under gray skies and through a frosty chill, they marched. Thousands of women in Washington, D.C., joined by hundreds of protests across the country for the third annual Women's March, many inspired by the collective call for change after the 2016 election. I felt abused by my political system. I felt used. I felt like it didn't represent me. I felt like my voice wasn't heard. I felt like I didn't have a voice. I, Donald John Trump. The day after the 2017 inauguration of Donald Trump, an unprecedented mass movement. Five million people in over 600 cities and towns worldwide rallied in response. The issues ran the gamut. Gender equality, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ rights, and environmentalists. It's believed to be the largest single-day protest in American history. The ideas came together under a single entity, Women's March, Inc., led by four women, Carmen Perez, Bob Bland, Tamika Mallory, and Linda Sarsour, lead organizers who became the faces of the movement. The 2018 march inspired slightly smaller crowds, fueled by the Me Too movement, calls for gun reform after the Parkland and Las Vegas shootings, and focused on voter turnout ahead of the midterm elections. Marching is not enough. Wearing a Black Lives Matter tee is not enough. Posting on social media, not enough. There's much more at stake here than that. That November saw an historic number of women win elected office. At the same time, the Women's March itself came under increasing criticism. From the beginning, housing many diverse causes under a single umbrella was a challenge. Early criticism included a failure to highlight the disproportionate struggles faced by women of color. Conservative women, including pro-life groups, claimed they were excluded. And preceding this year's march, accusations of anti-Semitism. Those charges centered on Mallory's association with Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, an iconic and influential advocate for black America, who's also repeatedly made anti-Semitic remarks. Key backers of the march, including some Democratic leaders, stepped away. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz wrote, While I still firmly believe in its values and mission, I cannot associate with the National March's leaders and principles, which refuse to completely repudiate anti-Semitism and all forms of bigotry. Sarsour responded on behalf of the Women's March, writing, We are deeply invested in building better and deeper relationships with the Jewish community, and we're committed to deepening relationships with any community who's felt left out of this movement. We want to create space where all are welcome. Mallory explained her refusal to outright condemn Farrakhan on the Breakfast Club radio show. I have not condemned the men who killed my son's father. Mm. I have never denounced them. I've never talked about them in a condemnation context. The controversy carried over into this year's march. What we're not going to do today is be negative. And to my Jewish sisters, I see all of you. I came to do a job with my sisters. And we will complete the job. And no one will be discarded from this movement. 
The three-year-old movement now confronts the challenge of moving its masses forward in unity. And organizers have released a political agenda to mobilize supporters into 2020 and beyond. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Amna Nawaz in Washington. But at the same time, I do believe that that we as women of color color, have to have have uh, a certain openness openness in having having conversations conversations to to help white women women understand understand our experience. We've got a story about two ministers who are trying to redefine what it means to fight racism. Talking about race can feel like navigating a minefield. The ministers outside Denver use compassion, spirituality, and laughter as a roadmap. Colorado Public Radio's Anne Maria Wad spent some time with the Soul to Soul Sisters. She has our story. The first thing you need to know about Reverend Don Riley Duval and Reverend Tawana Davis is that they don't have a church. They don't need one, says Riley Duval. The work that Tawana and I are called to do we could not do in the confines of a congregation or even a denomination. We had to create our own thing and do it um, how we feel it, how we feel called. She says both of them already put in their years as pastors in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Then they retired to found their nonprofit, Soul to Soul Sisters, three years ago. Davis says in order to do the work that they do, fighting racism, they had to play by their own rules. We don't need someone to give us permission to do the work, but we are creators. We are co-creators. And if we can't co-create in doing that work, then do your thing. God bless you. Wish no ill on you. You rock and do what you believe is anti-racism work. And we're going to do this. And what is this? It's facilitating conversations, predominantly among white people, about racism about how it works, all the different ways it can manifest itself, and most importantly, what a white person's role is in the task of dismantling racism. At first, they would give presentations to congregations, but Riley Duvall says not everyone wanted to hear what they had to say. Heard a lot of hurtful things, a lot of hurtful things, and we just decided absolutely not. That's not healthy. That's not self-care. We're not going to open ourselves up to being treated like that. Nowadays, the pair let people come to them, and they have, to the tune of more than 800 people just last year. They run multiple programs now, including one that still involves congregations. Another, called Facing Racism, is a four-week intensive. There's lots of reading, from writings by Malcolm X to rap lyrics. It is okay, and it is loving, and it is responsible for us to be like, it's not me, it's not my work to educate this person. At a session I attended, people discussed wanting to confront racist family members or asked for advice on how to navigate tough conversations with friends. No one was called out, and no one was judged. Again, Reverend Tawana Davis. We are encouraging critical feeling and critical thinking so you can think differently in this world. So we are, again, exemplifying and embodying what it is to experience difference and how to do this dance. The two also emphasize that the work of combating racism is ongoing. So there's a Facing Racism alumni group that meets monthly. Debbie Zucker is a facilitator with Facing Racism. We get kind of a big load of software as white people that gets downloaded. And now we're beginning, white people are increasingly interested in understanding what was handed to us. 
Zucker says Soul to Soul's approach works because it's compassionate and loving. No one is there to be singled out or called a racist. She says people come to the group to learn and to grow. Zucker has seen it herself. I mean, one white woman just looked at Don and Tawana and said, oh, I just got it that you care about your children as much as I care about mine. And the room just fell deeply silent. It was so honest, and it was really brave of her. Riley Duval says it's moments like this that show the impact of Soul to Soul's work. Giving permission, getting permission um, to be in the midst of challenge is beautiful for folks, um, is an opportunity that most folks do not get, do not have, and people are hungry for and appreciate. And that appreciation shows the organization is growing and the next installment of Facing Racism will be bumped up from a four-week intensive to five weeks. And that's by popular demand. For Here and Now, I'm Anne-Marie Awad. The riots and civil unrest went down about four years ago. You promised us federal funding to rebuild our community. What happened? Well, what happened was that uh, we all knew that was going to be big news for a while, so we all came down here, Bush, Clinton, Wilson, all of us. We got our pictures taken, told you what you wanted to hear, and we we pretty much forgot about it. (laughs) Did he just say what I think he said? Let's see where he's going with this. We can't get health insurance, fire insurance, life insurance. Why haven't you come out the Senate Bill 2720? Well, because you, you haven't really contributed any money to my campaign, have you? You got any idea how much these insurance companies come up with? They pretty much depend on me to get a bill like that and bottle it up in my committee during an election. And in that way, we can kill it when you're not looking. What do you say that the Democratic Party don't care about the African-American community? Isn't that obvious? Hey. You got half of your kids out of work and the other half are in jail. Do you see any Democrat doing anything about it? <laughs> Certainly not me. So what are you going to do, vote Republican? Come on, come on. You're not going to vote Republican. Let's call a spade a spade. I mean, I mean, I mean, come on. You can have a billion man march if you don't put down that malt liquor and chicken wings and get behind somebody other than a running back who stabs his wife. You're never going to get rid of somebody like me. At least half a dozen Democrats interested in the 2020 presidential nomination are speaking today at events commemorating the Martin Luther King holiday. NPR's Asma Khalid reports that this is really a reminder of how important black voters are in the Democratic primary. When Elizabeth Warren announced her exploratory committee for president, the Massachusetts senator didn't just talk about a crumbling middle class. She also acknowledged the impact of race and racism on our economy. Working families today face a lot tougher path than my family did. And families of color face a path that is steeper and rockier. And she's not the only one. Here's New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert announcing her intentions to run for president. But you are never going to accomplish any of these things if you don't take on the systems of power that make all of that impossible which is taking on institutional racism. Talking about institutional racism in a presidential campaign rollout feels new to Adrienne Shropshire. She's the executive director of Black Pack. 
you see the candidates sort of centering these issues of racial justice that just didn't happen in 2016 in the same way. Shropshire says that's because the culture in the country has changed in the Trump era and because of a shift in public perception around police brutality. Quentin James is the founder of Collective PAC. Its mission is to build black political power. In 2016, the Black Lives Matter movement was still new. I think candidates were unsure on how to respond to it. James says candidates now are a lot more nuanced when talking about police brutality. 2020 will likely be the most diverse field the Democratic Party has ever seen, with at least two African-American candidates, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. There is no doubt that they both have a level of credibility in the community. Booker has pushed to end mass incarceration, and Harris has spoken up about the rate of black maternal mortality. But the Reverend Al Sharpton says he was also surprised by just how well Elizabeth Warren and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar have been received. And uh, I thought Liz Warren had almost taken preacher lessons. I mean, they just connected better than I thought they would. Cornell Belcher, who was a pollster for Barack Obama's presidential campaigns, says there's a bonus for white candidates who can connect to black audiences. If you have a white candidate that, frankly, can give voice authentically to these issues in this space, it is counterintuitive in a way that I think helps that white candidate. Activists and analysts say it's not just about rhetoric. It's about how diverse your staff is, what your track record is, and whether people believe you. This can't be a road to Damascus kind of conversion. That's Al Sharpton again. He's met with nearly every serious presidential contender. And he says candidates this year realize they cannot win the nomination without significant support from black voters. Cornell Belger agrees. You're not going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party if you are the candidate who's coming in fifth place in South Carolina. In more than half a dozen states voting on Super Tuesday, black voters make up at least 10 percent of the Democratic electorate. In some states, like Alabama, more than 50 percent of Democratic voters are black. Both Belcher and Sharpton say none of the candidates have yet offered a lot of details to black voters. But Sharpton says, so far at least, they are talking more about racial justice than before. Whether that is a political calculation or whether that's a sincere appreciation is what we've got to be able to, you know, see. In other words, as one analyst told me, the question is, will candidates talk the same way today on MLK Day as they do the next time they venture out into Trump country? Asma Khalid, NPR News. Saying that black men and boys die does little to capture the causes that extinguish their lives. This reporting requires no academic engagement. It simply requires the interpretation of the black male lives lost. Often these deaths are not thought to be of the kinds important enough to learn more about. Black male deaths are normalized. We already know they happen constantly in our society, so they need not be analyzed. Because black males are known to die, we need not make them a subject of study. There is no need to divert theoretical resources to the facticity of their demise. Attempting to do so, to study black males as affected by particular ecological or ideological forces is reduced to the, oh, here we go again, syndrome. 
deadly encounter. A Maryland teen dies after a struggle with police officers. Little information revealed in an autopsy report and why his family is still demanding answers. Hello, everyone. I'm Vic Carter. And I'm Mary Bubala. Well, tonight, the family of the 19-year-old Maryland man who died after a fatal encounter with police say they want a grand jury investigation. Today, an autopsy report determining a heart condition and mental illness were contributing factors in his death. His family not satisfied with the findings so far. And George Solis joins us now and has the latest details in this controversial case. George? Good evening, Mary Vick. This is the 12-page report in the medical examiner's finding released by the family of Anton Black. Examiner's finding multiple blunt force trauma wounds and that Black had no drugs in his system. But it also characterizes Black's death as an accident. For months, the family of 19-year-old Anton Black have been pushing for answers after the death of their loved one. Well, we don't have a cause of death. We haven't been given one. They now have one after pressure from the media and the governor. I pushed very hard to make sure that we wrapped up this case. But the family is rejecting the findings. They are also demanding a grand jury investigation. They killed my son. They murdered him. Wednesday, more than 100 days after his death following a violent encounter with police outside his Greensboro home on the eastern shore, the family was given a copy of the autopsy report where the chief medical examiner determined Black died of, quote, sudden cardiac death stemming from a pre-existing heart condition, adding that a mental illness was also a contributing condition. The report goes on to say that it was likely that, quote, the stress of his struggle contributed to his death. Police body camera footage of the September encounter and struggle was also given to the media Wednesday. Greensboro police asking it not be made public while the case is still being investigated. The video reportedly shows Black being chased and detained by officers following an investigation into a kidnapping. Black was tased. Video shows him being handcuffed and put in leg shackles, as well as an officer partially laying on him. The medical examiner finding no evidence that caused or contributed to Black's death. In the end, concluding Black's death is, quote, best certified as accident. Black's family says they're conducting their own investigation into the findings. Their main argument centering on his arrest, saying, quote, there was no reason to tase him, no reason for the officer to tackle him, restrain him, shackle him, no reason for the trauma, no reason for him to die. There was nothing wrong with Anton. And despite the family's request, the Caroline County State's Attorney issuing a statement saying he has an ethical obligation to only put cases in front of the grand jury that he believes are supported by probable cause. In that same statement, he adds it would be unethical of me to put a case in front of the grand jury without probable cause, believing they would not return a true bill indictment simply to remove pressure on myself or this office. Mary Vick, back to you. Oh, oh, oh. here we go again. Here we go again. Central. 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 Well, the family of Khalif Browder reaches a multi-million dollar settlement with the city. Browder committing suicide after spending three years in jail on a charge that was eventually dropped. News 12 The Bronx reporter Tony Chow in downtown Brooklyn with more details. Story of this Bronx native has been up to this point pure tragedy. The system failed Khalif Browder. A system that confined him to Rikers Island for three years, about half of it in solitary confinement, all of it on robbery charges that were later dropped. He would take his own life in 2015. Never having to face a trial, never been convicted of a crime. But now a new chapter, the city agreeing to pay Browder's estate $3.3 million. Money officials hope will bring the family some closure. This is a fair and reasonable settlement. But what's really important here 
is not just the settlement, but the reforms that have been put in place as a result of this tragedy. In 2016, then-President Obama cited Browder's case in his decision to ban juvenile solitary confinement. His death also instrumental in the push to close Rikers altogether. Society since that time has taken a long, hard look at prison reform. And thankfully, there have been some changes to the prison system and how we treat teenagers. Adding to a legacy born in tragedy that has a long way to go. More reform has to come of this so we can honor his memory. Meanwhile, a surrogate court will decide how that $3.3 million settlement will be divided and distributed to the members of his family. In downtown Brooklyn, Tony Chow, News 12. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean editorial today, the Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink under, under Trump on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is end stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. Meanwhile, a white supremacist pleaded guilty today to murdering a black man in the middle of the street in midtown Manhattan. Prosecutors say the brutal attack was intended to incite a race war. James Jackson admitted to the stabbing that he stabbed 66-year-old Timothy Kaufman with a sword back in March of 2017 after stalking several other black men in New York City. Here's Iowa News reporter Naveen Dhaliwal. Without blinking an eye, James Jackson calmly agreed to the charges. The big one, murder as a crime of terrorism. White nationalism uh, is simply not going to be countenanced in our communities in New York. Strong words coming from Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance moments after James Jackson pled guilty to fatally stabbing 66-year-old Timothy Kaufman with this sword in March of 2017. The victim, a random choice, but his skin color, the big reason. It began with a terrible and cruel act by Mr. Jackson who came up to New York City uh, with the intent of hunting black men. I don't forgive you for what you did to my friend. It was in this videotape confession where the 30-year-old admitted to investigators that black people were inferior and should be exterminated. I view this as a domestic terrorist attack on the African-American community. And beyond that, um, really an attack on the modern interracial mixing. This video likely solidified the case, leading to today's guilty plea. I'm grateful that he pleaded guilty to all the charges, then that way they can just, you know, take him back and throw the key away. James Jackson is scheduled to be sentenced on February 13th. He's facing life in prison without the possibility of parole. That is the maximum sentence under New York criminal law.
Today is the day that we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States, always an important one on the calendar. Some people choose different ways to honor the civil rights icon. California Senator Kamala Harris did so by announcing right here at Howard University that she'd be running for president in 2020. However, Florida State University's football team went a different route, using an image of MLK superimposed with a quote of his as an inspirational message of sorts. One problem, they photoshopped a wide receiver's glove onto one of his hands as if he were a member of the team or something. Of course, all this happened on Twitter, obviously. Who knows what they were going for, and it was eventually deleted, but it was a pretty shameful gaffe. Here's the thing. If you don't know what to do in order to honor someone's legacy, doing nothing at all is better than getting it wrong, particularly when talking about an American icon. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, January 26, 2019. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, counter racist suggestions. The number 641. Seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. That segment at the end, Clinton Yates, black journalist. He was talking about Florida State. They used appropriated the image of Dr. King, I would say that's delectable Negro too. That's just another way of necrophilia consumption of dead black people and black people that have been killed, murdered by racists. Uh, But using Dr. King's image and putting some tacky uh, Florida State Seminoles paraphernalia on his image, this is the same school where they just had a white supporter who was talking about lynching the black head coach because they didn't win enough ball games this season. Same school might've been trying to get a little good PR. We care about the Negros. Look, Dr. King, the number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero, the code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound press star six, one. If you would like to participate, Many things to share. Wow. So number one, the cow's 10 year anniversary yoga retreat. I emailed the information yesterday. Sometime in the last 24 hours or maybe even a little bit longer than that. If you did not get the email and you would like information about the retreat, all the details, cost, dates, locations, what is included until justice at gmail.com just put in the subject yoga retreat that would be helpful and i will mail you out the details we are taking a max of 12 people if folks are just like that's crazy with uh the layout and where it's going to be at and you know what it would be if everybody's like that's crazy there's no way in the world we are interested in that then i guess we won't be doing it but if we have 12 folks that are down We will be doing the retreat uh, February 21 to February 24. Again, until justice at gmail.com. 
and we should be able to give you all of the details. If you have questions, you can email. If you're listening live, if you have questions, you can just dial in now and we can field as we go. But uh, 21 through the 24th of February, yoga, counter-racism, doing workshops, uh, plant-based meals. All of the meals would be plant-based. That means no honey, no seafood, no chicken, no beef, no turkey, no dairy products, no egg, no cheese. Thursday evening through Sunday brunch, noon-ish. <clears throat> uh, we'd be doing yoga every day while we are there. Uh, Satya X guest on the program last year. I think a lot of people appreciated her work. She has the Black Woman's Retreat in Costa Rica. She emphasized uh, to say that this endeavor, this is not a party. This is not going to Druryville, Virginia uh, to turn up, to hook up. This is restoration, exchange of views, practicing counter-racism, really exchanging views in a constructive manner uh, and self-care. That's what the whole Thursday through Sunday experience is supposed to be about, uh, to really emphasize that uh, as opposed to having people with the frame of mind that this is, you know, let's get down and boogaloo and not being serious, restore, replenish, self-care, practicing counter-racism, exchanging views networking, swapping uh, counter-racist suggestions, and maybe even a veggie recipe or two. Untiljustice at gmail.com. If you need information, if you have questions, you can email or you can dial in right now and we can take those as we proceed. Let's see. <clears throat> wow, the list is so lengthy. Uh, before we get to callers, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com I took a yoga class today with four black people at it I didn't even realize I'm not sure if I've been in a yoga class with that many black people uh, in it in Seattle Washington I guess the retreat would change, uh, change that but wow they and two of them were black females. They both had natural hair. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Thank you to all of the investors who have supported. We have been listener-supported since February of 2009. Ten years. Listener supported. If we did not have investors, we would not be on. Cal's decade, the listeners have been hugely responsible. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time, energy, life, currency. We have too many problems to be wasting time and energy. Certainly not with the cows if we are not getting constructive information. Below the PayPal button on the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, you will see the link for my Amazon wish list. Uh, it is listed at Amazon under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged to all the folks who have nabbed items down through the years. Again, I hope the cows has provided accurate, consistent information about what white supremacy racism is, 
what it means to be white and things that non-white people can do to solve this problem. Next, uh, I think I have been asked dozens of times, perhaps over the 10 years, uh, how did I come up with the name for the program or why did the program get named the cows context of white supremacy? If you listen to the compensatory call in at all about every week and listeners can verify this is a question I'll ask any of the folks who listen to the compensatory call in, you know, fairly regularly. Oops, I said fair. Cannot believe that. If you listen to the compensatory call in on a regular basis, uh, if you hear the term context in the audio segments, that's a question. Do you hear the word context at least once a week during the audio segments for the news uh, clips? Because I think it comes up at least once a week. Sometimes I will accent it. Sometimes I will not. This week, Wow, I think I heard it at least five different times uh, in segments when they were talking about the conflict with the young race soldier and the so-called Native American male. Uh, I heard it there. I heard it repeatedly in the segment with Annette Gordon-Reed where they were talking about the Confederate uh, monuments over and over again. The word context, that's supposed to be on the shirt for the Cow's 10-year anniversary yoga retreat. Context is everything. Each week, I think the compensatory call-in gives great illustrations of why this program is named Context of White Supremacy. Next, the segment on Khalif Browder, the man not race class genre and the dilemmas of black manhood. Mr. Browder is referenced in the man not. They said in that segment that this case has been a tragedy like up until now it's been right bad but look at here these niggers now they're going to get three million dollars hey things are looking up i wouldn't care if they got three billion dollars it's still a tragedy i mean what gil scott heron has a song uh who'll pay reparations on my soul and what is the value what is the price in fact i remember when uh my president when they provided reparations for the Central Park Five, the black males, non-white males uh, that were wrongly arrested, convicted for raping this white woman in Central Park in the 80s. And they gave them reparations in 2014. A part of my president's campaign launch was saying, oh, yeah, don't compensate those niggers. What a disgrace. They were wilding in the park to begin with. Remember, he took out that full page ad. He was furious about that. I was waiting for him to speak out on this one, too. I can't believe you gave that nigger's family three million dollars for what? He probably did steal that backpack. Uh, but they, yes, things are looking up. And I even think they heard they use the word fair when talking about the settlement, three million dollars and police reform. Next. <clears throat> Jada Pinkett Smith is a victim of white supremacy. VGQ. Victims guaranteed qualified Mr. Fuller's concept. Uh, Again, just meaning any non-white person victim of racism, they can take whatever position that they want to on racism. And that's that. That means that they are not to be name called, shamed, uh, (laughs) beaten up, accosted in any manner, uh, regardless of what stance they take on racism, even if they say that racism doesn't exist, even if they say that there's black supremacy, that's fine, too. Jada Pinkett Smith, VGQ. That's it. Wow. I do not think that the problem 
is that white women have not received enough help from non-white people, male or female, to understand the problems of the Negras. I do not think that that is the problem. I think <clears throat> we have invested a lot of time in reaching out to the Sandra. Oh, that's a metaphor. We have invested a lot of time in reaching out to white women, Sandra Bullock at all, and we have not succeeded. I think we need to reevaluate what it means to be white. Woman, man, child. Jada Pinkett Smith, BGQ. I was thinking she was in Bamboozled and, you know, might be a little less confused. VGQ. <clears throat> Incidentally, in that same segment, I haven't seen Jada Pinkett Smith's show, and based on what I heard in that interview, I will not be watching it. I didn't like Black Panther either, so that doesn't mean anything. Uh, Marvel's Black Panther. In that segment, they referenced former Cal's guest, admitted racist, Jane Elliott. I think this might be uh, one of the few programs, if not the only platform, where Jane Elliott is not referenced as <clears throat> anti-racist crusader. She's referenced admitted racist, exactly what she said when she was on the program. That's the only title that she should get, if that's accurate. And she said, yep, admitted racist. She explained why in the archives. I think three-time uh, guest on the program. No other title is needed. All that other nonsense is deception. Really, that is the act of racism right there. I went back and I was listening in the archives. Once I listened to that segment, like, oh, they mentioned our guest, Jane Elliott. Once I knew I was going to include a segment, I went back <coughs> to listen to her first visit to the cows, which was in January of 2010, nine years ago to the month. So I go back and I listen to her first visit <clears throat> and I'm furious. I do not like going back to have to listen to uh, archives, to have to listen to my voice. I think most people feel some type of way about having to hear themselves. I am similar. I do not enjoy having to go back and listen uh, to myself. <clears throat> so I'm disgruntled uh, about the interview and it's difficult. This was, you know, I think within... We hadn't even been broadcasting a year. I don't even think we had done 100 programs at the uh, at this point. So, I mean, wow, infancy of the cows. So I'm listening and I'm upset about one hand. She's practicing racism. And then I had to remind myself that, oh, yeah, she got invited on the very next day for me to say you were just practicing racism. <laughs> it's like, oh, OK, everything was taken care of anyway. But. I was listening, and while I was frustrated and yelling at myself or disgruntled about how I was doing the interview with her the first time, we got to that question to the blind side, and I paused, and I said, oh my goodness, is she going to talk and say that she loved the blind side? And I was hopeful that I did not say anything, just let her talk, and thankfully, Gus T did right on that one. Wow, I could say a whole lot of things about Jane Elliott being an admitted racist, just her commentary about Sandra Bullock, the great said, did you say this is not entertainment? I'm not interested in hearing what anybody has to hear, has to say about Bird Box. And I will mute your line if you have a syllable to say about Bird Box, because we are not doing entertainment on this broadcast, not on the compensatory call in. That said, the great Sandra Bullock from Bird Box, 60 years old, and she's pregnant with a black male who's 30 years younger than her. Sandra Bullock is 60 and they have her as a pregnant white woman who gets, anyway, the great Sandra Bullock from films such as Crash, 
the blonde side. Jane Elliott talks about how she loves this film. It's beautiful. She can relate to Sandra Bullock's character who gets frustrated when her racist friends don't understand her taking in an overweight Negro male to make his life better. Mm, what a great film. That is admitted racist Jane Elliott. White people can show you better than I can tell you. And she gets like $10,000 for her lecture. She uh, conceded that when talking uh, on the program. I'm sure that was inflation. It's been a decade. She probably got $20,000, thousands of dollars to come and talk to Jada Pinkett Smith and spread more confusion and dishonesty and white supremacy racism, confusing folks while they appear to be talking against racism. Masterful. Next. James Jackson, white supremacist in New York. Again, Dr. Tommy Curry, the man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. He said explicitly, I read it in multiple reports, that he had been stalking black males specifically to start a race war and then stabbed and killed a black male in the middle of Manhattan. If someone had come up to me today and said, hey, do you remember that case? What was that black male's name? I'll give you a million dollars. I would not have remembered at all. I did remember the case. I remembered Mr. Jackson, the white uh, war race soldier. I remembered his face. I could not remember his name. I had forgotten this case. I can't even believe that I didn't. We didn't reference this case while reading the man not uh, for me. The fact that I had forgotten uh, this case. I mean, imagine that being stabbed in the middle of Manhattan, New York, and by a white supremacist who said, oh, yeah, I did this to start a race war and forgotten. I don't think this I don't think this is a common talking point when people reference racism. I don't think this is Jane Elliott's uh, beginning point when she comes out to talk about racism. They'll start with toxic black masculinity. If other folks remember, or rather, if other people had forgotten and or not remembered James Jackson, white supremacist at all, or Mr. Timothy Kaufman, the black male who was stabbed in the middle of Manhattan, that would be appreciated as well. Continuing. When they made the comparison, they were talking about the young race soldiers uh, at the protest uh, who confronted the Native American male. And NPR did the segment where they had the uh, book on, quote unquote, bias. Everybody's bias. See, that sort of, of logic. There is no racism. Everybody just has their own bias. That's dece master deception, in my view, just right there with that that premise, that way of thinking. And then they give metaphors. They give examples to compare and say, well, if a person, if you have a lens and you see someone like this upstanding young white citizen with his MAGA hat on, make America great again. And you just already have that lens that, oh, this person is a racist. I mean, you've already got your bias about how you're going to see this, just like my father-in-law. You know, he sees Colin Kaepernick and he's already got a set of bias. Now that right there, I say when people make those comparisons, the same thing that I said last week, make America great. There's a lot of footage of people with those hats on going out and committing acts of violence, terrorism, in exciting, excuse me, inciting and talking about acts of violence against non-white people. I have never seen Colin Kaepernick 
commit violence against anyone in a non-football contact context. And even then, he was a quarterback, so the violence was being committed against him. From what I understand, he is known for taking a knee. That's not comparable at all. And I'm of the opinion I've concluded racists do that all the time to practice racism. They will get, I say that every week, they will give you two illustrations and say, oh, see, these are the same examples. Everyone has a little bit of bias. And really, any conversation about racism, the same way that we've done it for a decade, it should start with the context is not everybody has a little bias. The context is we are in a system of white supremacy. And then we can proceed from there. Not everybody has a little bias. So, you know, you might look at Colin Kaepernick through your lens and I'll look at the MAGA shirt through my lens. And that's all just no system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, the situation in Florida no, or Miami specifically, uh, Matt Bartlett in that news segment, they said he was hurling ugly words. Exact same thing I just said. Masters, when they talk about deception, no one does it better. We had that report last week where they talked about how white people, in my view, practice racism in the uh, journalists, white journalists, by not calling things what they are. When someone practices racism, you got a white man here, Matt Bartlett, brandishing a firearm at minors, black children, males again, the man not, brandishing a firearm, calling them niggers, and we can't even say then, wow, he's hurling racial slurs, it's ugly words. What are ugly words? Are there pretty words? What are the pretty words? That's what I mean. And you're supposed to be a journalist. You should be skilled with words. At least that's why I, say I would much rather them just say, well, just say nigger. That way you can say I'm objective. You can just give what they call it the trigger warning and just say what he said. That way we don't have you practicing racism as opposed to you beeping out that he said nigger and just saying, oh, he hurled some ugly words. Continuing. Uh, I do not ever want to hear Al Sharpton's name mentioned on the program again. I think I've said that before, and I'm just emphasizing. It. I think it's a lengthy list. Al Sharpton is on that list. Jesse Jackson, uh, Don Lemon, recent ad. I'm not interested in hearing what any non-white person in the known universe has to say about any of these people ever again as long as I live. Mute button is in effect for all of those folks. Uh, incidentally, someone else who should be on the list, but I don't hear people complain uh, or talk bad and name call uh, this individual victim. Do you all remember how frequently Dr. Cornell West was on Democracy Now! and a variety of media outlets for the entire time that President Obama was in the White House? I have not seen him at all since President Trump has been the pre or has been in the Oval Office. I have not seen him at all. It would seem that they could do the same thing. Call him out every week, get his gripes and complaints. Maybe I have missed him. I don't keep up with his uh, itinerary to know where his speaking engagements are. Maybe I just haven't seen him. But I didn't exactly look for him when President Obama was in office. And I felt like I saw, heard his commentary all the time, talking bad and criticizing really harshly our former president. I do not hear that at all with President Trump. 
I might be in error. Please let me know if, you know, you are seeing him and this is happening and I just haven't haven't been watching correctly. Uh, the Soul to Soul Sisters. These black females that are doing their workshops where white people, I guess, come to them and they talk about racism. They said they had about 800 people who, I guess, came to their functions over the past year. Again, I want to put that in context. Daniel Holtzclaw is a convicted sexual terrorist, former Oklahoma City police officer. He was exclusively raping black females in a matter of days, not a whole year, in a matter of days, he raised $10,000 for his legal defense fund. This is a convicted rapist and he raised $10,000 to help him fight off accusations of terrorizing exclusively black females. In a year, you get 800 white people who allege that they might want to talk about racism. That's what I mean about, you know, let's just be honest about what it means to be white. That way we can stop wasting time. Last thing. Annette Gordon-Reed, she was on the segment talking about context. I know we have listeners in Houston, the Texas area in general. I regularly encourage, uh, take advantage. You can learn a lot about white supremacy racism with just learning about where you are, wherever it happens to be in the known universe. Uh, local, national, global system, as Dr. Welsing used to say, if you're in the Texas area, take advantage. Uh, if you can go here, if you know schedule allows, go here, Miss Annette Gordon-Reed. She's a black female. Uh, she is most known, I believe, for her books on uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, Cowbell, and their tragic arrangement. Uh, but she's a historian. She's at Harvard. She was talking about the Confederate monuments and what have you. She used the term white supremacy in context correctly, uh, in my view. Uh, go hear what she has to say, if possible. Might be an interesting opportunity to ask questions uh, and hear, hear how the whites respond to what she has to say. I'm always fascinated with her because of her work on the uh, Monticello and Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings. Um, I have not read her books. They are massive, like these are their histories. Uh, they're thick. Uh, I think both of the books are over 700 pages. I own one. They're massive, and I would like to get to a point where things are calm, there is no flood, and I can sit and devote a um, few months to reading it. I have thumbed through. I have read. We've had guests on the program who've written about, who've written biographies on Jefferson and the, uh, Hemings and all of that. And people keep saying that she talks about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings' relationship as though it is one of those romances and this is a family. And I'm staggered with that every time. Like when I hear that, like that can't be. Like I've heard her and she seems less confused. And then I start to read a little bit and it seems like it is leaning in that direction. So I'm always mystified. I do need to read the whole book because, you know, maybe uh, maybe I just haven't read correctly or maybe once I read it in its entirety, I'll have a better appreciation and I'll be able to give an, an accurate assessment. But I'm intrigued uh, if anyone has read her works. That would be great. And again, if you're in the Texas area and can go hear her speak, that would be great. Or any other uh, speakers. There's probably a lot of those engagements going on over the next month or so where you might have an opportunity to ask White's questions 
directly. I think that's always something that's a great aspect of counter-racism that gets neglected. Questioning whites, hugely important, something we try to uh, demonstrate on the program I think we have for a decade. Just had Ann S. Michelson on the program Tuesday. Mm. With that, the number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. If we could not use metaphors, that would be super appreciated. Uh, Just given many examples of why metaphors are frequently used to confuse us, we are still learning uh, victims of white supremacy. We've been exposed to the toxic manner that whites use metaphors and analogies and comparisons. Uh, Many victims, we are still learning. And as such, sometimes we don't have the logic to articulate our thoughts So we will invoke a metaphor or analogy to convey what we're thinking. And frequently, that just produces more confusion. Uh, If we could be direct, specific to what it is that we want to say, that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about that. Thank you kindly. If you could take about five minutes to share your commentary thoughts, that would be appreciated. Uh, just make sure everyone gets at least one chance to share. And then once we have extra time at the end, if you have additional comments or questions, you can proceed. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be appreciated. Uh, just helps to preserve the quality of the broadcast if we don't have to fight over uh, a lot of unnecessary disruptions and other people speaking and such in the background. Thank you kindly. First few folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, questions to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, interesting um, news clips. Uh, let's see. Um, about the the incident, or the the terrorist attacking. I was going to say incident, wrong word. The, ter- the terrorist beginnings, I guess, in New York. I forgot about him too. And that was one question I wanted to ask the. The guest on Tuesday, I'm glad she was there. I'm I'm glad she was there. I wasn't offended. I know she went on and on. You know, I was like, yeah, hey, questions. But about the anonymity of these of the white perpetrators, I mean, in the book it was Officer 115 or whatever. Every day they give them cute nicknames, Peppermint Patty, Ghost Gina, Tired Timmy, whatever the name may be. We never really know these white people's real names. So I had a question about that. And also, a lot of the clips talked about, the, well, some of the clips talked about the religion. And I know in the book that we're reading, it comes up again, religion. And uh, there's a chapter, The Church and Slavery. I don't know if we read this book, if you read this book, because I haven't had time to go through all the archives. But the, the religious instruction of the Negro, I think that would be an important book for us to read, after, especially after this book. Um, it's available in books and libraries, some, but it's, it's definitely available online. 
as a document so no one has to buy it. You don't have to spend money on it. Um, and really, I think it's by Charles something Jones, Colcock Jones Sr., and he goes into detail about how the religious people should teach the black people about Christianity. And I think that will be great insight, more insight into the religion of white supremacy, not just what it is, but how it's communicated to non-white people, specifically black people. And I think that's all I have for now. Thank you. Oh, there's already an audio book for that. That's all, and it's unabridged. That's always uh, appreciated when Gus T does not have to do the reading. Uh, there is an audio book for the religious instruction of the Negroes in the United States. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Henry in Chicago. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, <clears throat> regards to the Covington uh, Catholic school boys, race soldiers, um, I know a lot of the media brought out the attention of the group of non-black, uh, non-black people who call themselves black Hebrew Israelites on the name calling that they've done uh, to these boys. But that does not, that does not, uh, negate the fact that these Covington Catholic school white boys are racist. So I don't, for my, from my standpoint, I don't care what these black Hebrews like said, the Covington Catholic school boys are racist. Uh, in regards to Chicago segregation, uh, that's really not news. Uh, Chicago has been always been segregated and there is a, you know, a movement of, pushing all or moving out forcefully all of the non-white people, in particular black people, out of the city of Chicago uh, in many ways. Uh, And I heard the uh, story uh, talking about how the properties of white people are uh, higher than those of of black uh, and uh, people they call Hispanic. What's so interesting is a couple of months ago, there was uh, there was a uh, corruption case uh, in the Cook County assessors where uh, they were assessing properties of non-white people, in particular black and what they call Latino people, uh, two times higher than the properties of white people. Uh, so uh, they are. Um, making this move to uh, move everybody out of the city so white people can take over Chicago. Um, the Soul to Soul uh, sisters, uh, Tawana Davis and Dawn Riley Duvall. Oh, and Gus, I wanted to correct you because uh, I I brought this out in one of the workplace racisms. The organization I work for hired uh, Admitted race soldier, uh, admitted racist. Uh, oh God, what's that woman's name again? Uh, what is her name? I just froze up. Uh, Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, the organization that I work for paid her twelve thousand dollars. 
So she is not at the $10,000 rate. She is at the $12,000 rate uh, to confuse more non-white people. But in comparison to what the two non-white black females are doing, uh, I am willing to bet that they are not making as much money as Jane Elliott. Uh, and also, too, in the uh, in the in the clip, they were also getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, white backlash uh, on their you know on their uh, presentation on racism. Uh, I never, well, from my standpoint, I never heard Jane Elliott get any white backlash about what she you know in her confusion she's teaching. Um, I heard uh, in one of the clips uh, a kind of like a semi, uh, kind of like a semi metaphor where it says Trump, com- uh, Trump country, uh, and I guess they were referring to the demographics of white people who support uh, or voted for Donald Trump. Uh, Trump country is the United States of America, all of the United States of America. He is the white supremacist in chief, so. Trump country is the United States. Uh, and also, to an update, uh, a couple, uh, about two months ago, and uh, uh, one of the uh, programs you did uh, on a local, local shooting here of a security guard, uh, uh, Jamel Robinson. Uh, he is the uh, security guard who uh, diffused a uh, mass shooting situation, and he was shot by a white Midlothian police officer. Uh, they have released this Midlothian police officer's name. After two months, uh, his name is Ian Covey, and he is a white man. Uh, that's no surprise, but, you know, uh, it, I don't know, I, I don't think it was a coincidence that they released his name right after uh, the three race soldiers last week uh, were, uh, were uh, acquitted of uh, of conspiracy, and also to uh, <clears throat> uh, Jason Van Dyke, only got six years, or what the judge says, 81 or 82 months, uh, using racist tactics uh, to make it seem like they're giving him a lot. So uh, that uh, so they yeah they did release uh, that 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 officer's name, but uh, that's all I have for now. In my life. I'm sure Mr. Covey has a GoFundMe page and he is already at the $10,000 mark and, you know, looking to uh, clear at least a quarter million. That's, you know, going rate for shooting a Negro with a badge. Uh, incidentally, much obliged for the correction, 12000 I thought inflation probably at a higher rate now for Jane Elliott, admitted racist. Uh, thank you kindly. Strive for accuracy. Uh, and they already took over Chicago. Uh, I think the late Harold, late and former mayor of Chicago, Harold Washington, I think he, among many other victims in the Windy City, as they say, would testify. Absolutely. Uh, racists have been in charge of Chicago, this part of the world, for a long, long time. Uh, much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, we've not heard from you. Proceed. Hello, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Good evening to everyone. Good evening, Gus. Um, So let's see. You mentioned Sandra Bullock. 
And um, I actually have a friend of mine um, on the line listening right now. And during um, your commentary on Sandra Bullock, we discussed how um, she practices refinement, racist refinement, because she actually donated, I believe it was $10 million to um, our high school, our alma mater in New Orleans, Warren Easton Fundamental High School. And um, now um, that school is a charter school. It is no longer public, um, being run by private hands. And I'm more than sure I I can't say for a, a fact, but I'm pretty sure she probably had something to do with that. I can't imagine why. Um, a white female would donate, be willing to donate so much money to a school without having some sort of say in the um, administration and operations um, going forward. Um, but that, again, that's my suspicion. Khalif uh, Browder's family receiving the um, $3 million award. I wonder how much of the money is going to have to go into some type of charitable fund And I say that because many times, I won't say every time, but there are many times that I've read about non-white victims of uh, police terrorism um, getting a multi-million dollar settlement and there being some offset of the settlement into some type of charitable fund or a nonprofit to uh, you know, in the honor of the the fallen person, the person slain, to make it look like this is money going into, you know, correcting the problem when the family shouldn't have to do anything like that. It should be the people that were culpable that have to give money into such a thing and, and actually take action on correcting incorrect and terroristic behavior. So I wouldn't be surprised if um, they won't even be allowed to maintain the entire amount. Uh, The next thing I have, um, I don't know if anyone else has heard of this, but there were four 12-year-old girls strip searched in Birmingham, Birmingham, New York, um, in a Birmingham middle school um, by a principal and a nurse because they were too giddy and laughing too much during lunch. And they suspected that they were either in contact with narcotics or were in possession. And when the uh, the guidelines for searches were posted on Facebook, there were there was only wording saying, "When requested, the student um, can be you know can submit to a search of their belongings and their locker." There's no verbiage for strip search, obviously, because this isn't, they're not law enforcement. And um, I would, I'm sure it's uh, a form of sexual abuse. It's also a form of uh, HIPAA laws because it's involving the anatomy in the body. Parental consent was not there. And um, yeah, so that happened. And um, those kids will be traumatized now. um, And they, they said they didn't find anything. So there's that. Uh, in regard to Ms. Uh, Pinkett Smith, I don't believe her show is constructive in regard to these ideas because, for one, it does not help to bring uh, 
the system of racism, white supremacy to an end and replace it with justice. I feel that it's showcasing um, because obviously there's comfort given to a white audience seeing celebrities, black celebrities, wealthy celebrities, again, saying, oh, you know, it can't, racism isn't that bad. These people have surpassed it. And now look, they have this show and they're, and they're airing their families, uh, you know, history for us to see. And it also, um, it bothers me that she's having these conversations for the public view because her children are victims of racism and they are dis- they're showing signs of sexual confusion publicly. Her son, I'm not name calling, I'm just saying for a fact, he wears dresses in public and her daughter as well dresses androgynously. And it's like there's always been rumor or, you know, things said about the Smith family practicing sexual confusion and what they would call now fluidity. So I really think that's um, incorrect behavior. And it's just being put on display for a white audience's entertainment and comfort. The last thing I would like to share in regard to the segment about um, Confederate statues and symbols and I've come to the conclusion that white people are not serious, not only about not ending racism, but they're not serious about removing Confederate statues or symbols um, in any way. And if they, if they do, they will maintain uh, their racist um, ideology and, and dedication through street names in New Orleans. Louisiana, we have a street named Robert E. Lee. And I mean, for crying out loud, it can't get any, I'm sorry, it's a metaphor, but it can't get any more blatant than that. There are other streets named after governors that uh, presided over Louisiana, both uh, before and after slavery. Um, Let me see. And it's an act of confusion and deceit because the people naming these streets, obviously I'm led to believe white people know that most non-white people don't know who these streets or who these people are that these streets are named after. And then they mix them up with other street names that seem abstract. So here in New Orleans, you know, they'll say, oh, Music Street and Painters and this and that, but then you'll have a street named Diabody. And that's a person, but most non-white people don't know that. And so I would also say that the proof that they are not willing to lose their racist um, dedication um, in public is because Washington, D.C., you have a city in which there are states, the, the states are street names, and then you have numbered streets, but guess where they all lead to? They all lead to the biggest Confederate monument that the world has ever seen, the U.S. Capitol building and the White House. And they're not about to tear that down anytime soon in the foreseeable future. And with that said, I will mute my line. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Gus. 
much obliged for the commentary, uh, especially the update, because I didn't know about the uh, black girls uh, who were strip searched uh, up in New York. Uh, I searched online. Uh, I'm just reading this report because they mentioned the powerful NAACP towards the end. Uh, this is from Fox 5. New York school denies that girls were strip searched. Uh, this is from January 25th, yesterday. Uh, an upstate New York school district denied Thursday that four 12-year-old girls were subjected to strip searches in their middle school nurse's office, an allegation that brought a throng of community members to a school board meeting to demand answers and disciplinary action against staff members. The community group Progressive Leaders of Tomorrow urged people via social media to turn out at Tuesday night's school board meeting. The group said the girls who are black were questioned and strip searched by the school nurse and assistant principal at Binghamton, Binghamton, that's it, Binghamton's East Middle School on January 15 because they seemed hyper and giddy during their lunch hour and were suspected of possessing drugs. That's what niggers do. I thought we were in the middle of the opioid crisis. It's got to be lots of white teens that are running around on opioids. Do they, are they subjected to the same level of suspicion? Like it's gotten to me. It should be even greater because they keep saying there's so many white opioid addicts. Uh, continuing, the children were instructed to remove their clothing and felt ashamed, humiliated, and traumatized by the experience, said a statement distributed by the group at the meeting. The group issued a list of demands, including a stop to strip searches of children and a public apology to the students and community. On its Facebook page, Progressive Leaders of Tomorrow said three of the girls had to remove their shirts and the fourth was given an in-school suspension for refusing to remove her shirt and pants. In a statement released Thursday afternoon, the school district said there has been a lot of misinformation being spread through social media and third parties. It went on to say no students were strip searched, nor were they punished as a result of the incident in question, and they were allowed to return to class after being evaluated. While it did not say specifically on what happened to the girls, the district said school staff can conduct physical or medical evaluations if they observe behavior that is out of character in students, especially the Negros. A medical evaluation may require the removal of bulky outside clothing to expose an arm so that vitals like blood pressure and pulse can be assessed. This is not the same as a strip search, the statement said. Michael Barrero President of the Broom Tiaga NAACP, powerful NAACP, gave the school board a list of demands, including removal of the principal, the assistant principal, and the nurse who did the searches. This is outrageous that these girls got strip searched and nobody got suspended. Barreo said Thursday before the district denied there was a strip search. School rules say parents have to be informed before anything like this happens. I will stop there. Uh, the only thing I will uh, add, <laughs> the powerful NAACP, uh, gangsters make demands. When you are in a position of power, you make a demand and you ask one time. You don't ask again. You've already let the person, and sometimes you don't even let them know. You just say one time if you're making a demand. I am of the opinion that black people, no black people in the known universe are able to make demands of whites. Wouldn't have a system of racism, white supremacy if that were the case. But again, I could be incorrect.
folks we've not heard from, if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, my first report is on the uh, Liberty Square housing project. Uh, that was what the uh, made the national news with the uh, white uh, male uh, racial suspect that uh, uh, had a gun uh, and was approaching... Uh, young black males uh, in the uh, middle of a uh, very uh, highly uh, priced and powerful uh, white area. Um, the uh, If the uh, same area, I'm talking about Liberty Square, also known as uh, pork and beans, uh, actually, that's you know, I mean, of course, that's a that's a metaphor, but it actually is a better better terminology than something called Liberty Square, and it's a housing project. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, it was reported as the uh, first housing projects in the history of this part of the world. Although I saw another report to whereas. Uh, uh, there was also a, a housing project in the city of Atlanta in and around the same time. So I would say it's one of the uh, first housing projects in the history of this part of the world that's called the United States. That's called the United States. Uh, the uh, non-white black people, uh, based on its history, just commonly call it pork and beans, but nevertheless, uh, powerful white people are in the process of tearing it down and replacing it with uh, privately owned uh, residents, uh, which means that uh, more than likely they're, they're going to be faced with uh, the non-white black people going to be faced with, uh, with Mr. Fuller calls racial displacement. Uh, and in turn, uh, the uh, the young people that were protesting actually uh, the the ride on bicycles was actually a pretty far distance. Uh, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's a very uh, uh, pretty much long area from where they uh, went. Uh, but that's just some of the history behind uh, the uh, on why they were protesting. Uh, moving on, uh, uh, I, uh, have been in the process personally of finding a, a roofer, uh, that's very significant down here with, you know, with hurricanes, that sort of thing. It's probably one of the most important, uh, renovations that, uh, a person in South Florida would put on their, uh, place of residence would be a roof. And I specifically wanted to find a black person uh, that owns a roofing business, which is hard to find, to do. And I finally found one uh, myself and my uh, uh, sister uh, for her house, as well as uh, mine. She basically did most of the the, uh, legal uh, work and research and that sort of thing. The only thing I had to do was contact the person and uh, 
hired hire him also. So that was accomplished uh, this week. Uh, last but not uh, least, uh, report on uh, the DCS programs work today. Uh, it has been rainy, rainy uh, over the last 24 hours. It's probably going to be raining tomorrow. Uh, it was planned for a field trip. Uh, the annual field trip that we take uh, to take the uh, the young fellows to uh, learn how to golf. Of course, the instructors is a black male, uh, but that was canceled because of the rainy weather. So therefore, we just watched uh, we just watched film. I actually had uh, one of the uh, young fellows to pick the uh, DVD that they were going to watch. Uh, it actually was about. Uh, the high school is actually about uh, uh, the high school that serves the area where the uh, Liberty Square young people go to on the high school level, uh, primarily. Uh, but it's about uh, it was about uh, a student that goes to the school. The documentary actually was made back in 2005, and he was one of the top high school football recruits in the country at a time and uh it was about some of the some of the issues and problems in his life his father died when he was a young young fella uh and in turn uh his uh he was receiving some pressure on whether or not he was going to be able to pass the uh different ncaa requirements to uh go to college uh to uh take advantage of his scholarship which he said his goal was to uh graduate uh, uh, from college. Uh, I actually coached him, uh, his sophomore and junior year. Uh, he did accomplish the task, uh, and, uh, went to, uh, university of Florida. He was actually kicked out of university of Florida and in turn, uh, transferred to Bethune Cookman, ended up graduating from Bethune Cookman. And uh, presently, last last I heard about him, he was actually goes around as a quote unquote motivational speaker, basically you know telling his life story. That's guess what, what a lot of motivational motivational speakers do about their life story and some of the wrong things that they did and what they applied to themselves as solutions and uh, suggestions that others uh, could uh, basically uh, follow based on his or her mistakes. And uh, that's all I have to report. Thank you. Right on, right on. Much obliged. That is interesting information. I didn't even pay, paying attention to words. Liberty Square. Where we're right. in the <laughs> warehouse, the poor niggers. We'll call it Liberty. Pork and beans, absolutely. That would be much better. That's what you niggers will be lucky to get for dinner. Pork and beans, as opposed to exactly. Liberty Square, which you will never get. Pork and beans is actually attainable here. Liberty, yeah. Liberty. One of the few times where a metaphor is kind of relevant. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think they got Liberty Gardens somewhere too. That's another one, but yeah. Anywho, uh, thank you, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we have not heard from you, if you have commentary, the number again, 641 715 the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. 
Thomas in New York. Greetings, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers. Um, um, talking about liberty, um, look up the word libertinism, um, which is what I think white people mean by liberty. Um, the Florida um, case, um, thinking about charging a white man who pulled the unregistered gun by screaming nigger at black teenagers, who were only exercising their so-called rights, uh, freedoms of speech and assembly and um, rights to a peaceful protest. Um, but thinking about um, <laughs> in a place with so many uh, white people who are classified as Jews, I would imagine anyone who did this to them, got out the car calling them, um, whatever the derogatory word people use for them, I'm quite sure that it wouldn't be thinking about charging them with um, any type of hate crime. Um, word masters, white people, um, are suffering from cultural cognition. Um, I looked it up. The tendency of persons to form perceptions of risk and related facts that cohere with self-defining values. Word masters. Um, I think that that's as confusing as um, white privilege. Um, it's, it's just one of those things that's going to confuse black people. It's white supremacy, and um, we should just stick to that. Um, Southern, Southern whites are the only people in the world to make and place statues and monuments to make up traditions and holidays all surrounding a war they lost, and they're under the rule of the people that beat them. And they reenact this war every year, like it, it's, it's, uh, this Confederate thing. Just it's just like uh, imagine the French reenacting the Haitian War every year. Like I mean, like who does that other than the white people here in America? Which is why we have the mo the number one problem on the planet. Um, Jada Pinkett Smith, whose son signed a multi million dollar deal to be a female clothing model for Gucci. That's Karen. That's Francois Penault. That's the reason why I think Harvey Weinstein, he's the reason why I think Harvey Weinstein might actually face some charges. And he's also one of the people that um, Mr. West accused of practicing white supremacy against him um, in his attempt to be a fashion designer. But um, no help in white people is my code, um, in particular white women, um, the mothers of white supremacy especially when it comes to understanding the way that they're dedicated to mistreating us and practicing white supremacy against us. Um, that makes no sense to me. Um, they're so dedicated. They teach their sons and daughters to do it. And they haven't, um, they haven't slipped up at all at doing that. Um, the skit you played with the democratic politician, that was so unfortunately true. Um, it was funny, hilarious. Um, Khalif Browder family awarded $3 million. I know, look at the words again. Black people get awarded. White people get rewarded. Um, we get awards, they get rewards. Um, we never really get anything but some trinkets. Um, New York giving off the perception that they're anti-white nationalists. With they, when they have a lifelong New Yorker who's a white nationalist in the White House. I mean, <laughs> this is the, the financial capital of white nationalism and global white supremacy. I don't understand um, how they're even trying to give off that perception. 
shut down the banks, move the UN. I mean, I mean, come on. Um, lastly, Kamala Harris, um, Attorney General of California, when um, Oscar Grant was shot by Bart Officer Johannes Marsal. Um, he was only sentenced to two years for killing this young man. And um, she reduced his term to only 146 days. Um, she's half Indian, half West Indian, half East Indian, and half West Indian. Uh, her parents are not from the Americas. So they're not from this country. They, they're not, they haven't had the same plight that we've had. Um, I, I, she's married to a white man. Um, I, I have very little faith in her doing anything to end the system of white supremacy. Absolutely. Gus, I mute my line. Thank you. Great show. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, other folks, did you remember that case? The black male, Mr. Uh, Kauf, Timothy Kaufman, uh, when he was stabbed? Did you? Absolutely, yeah. Sure, the dude ran up on him. They showed the tape over and over again and, um, you know, put off the perception that this was such a bad... Yeah, they've been played on the news. Um, and I've heard, I heard the case up in Binghamton uh, with the girls who uh, was strip searched. Um, I heard the new um, black attorney general here in New York um, speaking about that. Um, so, yes. Yes, sir. Okay. Much obliged. Keep, uh, I guess other folks can let me know if they recall the case from 2017 in New York as well. Or if you heard about the incident with the young black girls at the school in New York, that was the report I read was just from uh, yesterday. So that's a newer incident, I reckon. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, good evening, everybody. I hope everybody's having a constructive evening. It's Dread 138. Um, I do, like that, I also live in the New York area. I do recall the case, but like I said, um, in line with your question, I don't recall the particulars. And I think that highlights the importance of preserving the archives of the cows. I want to submit that the content also of these stories makes it easier for us to um, overlook or forget the continuum of the system of white supremacy. Um, I want to offer a brief update on the Jasmine Barnes case. Somebody that needs to be um, some further scrutiny is defense attorney for defense attorney for Larry Woodruff and the suspected racist Lisa K. Andrew. She's been involved with a couple of uh, high-profile cases in the area known as Texas. Um, and I'll my line. I didn't hear most of the clips, but I'll submit uh, further commentary by email. Thank you. Awesome. That is great. I, pre I said that uh, last week for people to uh, just be mindful uh, and try to look for information, new information on the Jasmine Barnes uh, case as they try to explain how this happened and how this went from a white male in his 40s to them arresting and charging two black males in all of this and mistaken identity to, you know, at least be mindful and watch this to try not to forget as the weeks uh, go by. So absolutely, I appreciate that. And any other listeners, if you, especially if you're in the area and you get lots of direct local information, that's great. But regardless of where you are, if you are <clears throat> staying current with this incident, bravo and please share. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, line should be open. 
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, M. Hondisi. Yes, sir. Greetings. I wanted to speak about, again, the sun and heat and chemtrails that white people are blocking the sun. And I've seen a lot of a lot of scientists speak about uh, the problem that white people or these group of albinos or white people are albinos. Um, they have a problem with heat and they have a problem with the sun to where they'll die in a certain amount of sunlight, actually in the healthy, actually like the regular amount of sunlight that the earth receives, they'll die from that. So they have to block the sun and they've figured out a lot of different ways to do it. But one of the main ways that they're doing it is by spraying the chemtrails in the sky. I'm looking up right now, I'm outside and I can see white clouds all over. Um, it's important. Uh, there's scientists that say that because the, the sun is going to continue to warm up the planet, that in a short period of time, white people will cease to exist because there will be an environment on earth that doesn't allow them to, to be on earth. This is what their scientists are saying. They, they said in uh, 2025 that uh, people, that there will be a mass extinction of people. And they're talking about white people. They didn't say all, all people, they weren't saying all people will die. They were saying there's going to be a massive extinction of people. A lot of people will die. But they're talking about all of white people because it'll be too hot. And they can only keep these. They haven't figured out how to keep the aerosols in the sky for a long enough time. Like, it's, it's possible to knock those aerosols out of the sky. I'm not even talking about the airplane. I'm talking about what they're spraying. It's possible to get that out of the sky. And then that will exacerbate the situation that white people have not being able to be in the sun. It's unfortunate, um, but yeah, we do need to solve the problem and maybe uh, they can go back to Europe where it's still cold. Uh, and then um, I haven't, I haven't gotten any updates yet on the uh, shooting uh, at the Kroger's, the white uh, guy who did the white male who shot two black people, killed two black people, shot a couple other people. Um, but I will. All right, thanks. I appreciate that. I think that was uh, Gregory Bush, I think was the race soldier's name uh, in that one who did the shooting at the, I think it was a Kroger grocery store out in Kentucky, uh, particularly uh, for the folks where these incidents happen in your area. I know Red in Nevada, uh, she tried to be mindful about the Las Vegas shooting. Uh, that happened uh, back in 2017, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, particularly those type of uh, events uh, that can be a little counter racist project uh, or not a little, a serious uh, counter racist project uh, and just keeping abreast of what's reported, what they say. Uh, is it talked about at all? Is it just something that they, you know, don't even give updates uh, on the case anymore? Even the word usage, such uh, usage. I think Red in Nevada was saying that they don't even call that shooting. They don't even uh, referencing they don't reference it as a terrorist attack. They don't reference it hardly as a shooting. I think they just say the 
whatever the date was and leave it at that, just very uh, nebulous in the description, deliberately so. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, uh, if we have missed you totally, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, callers and uh, listeners. Uh, thank you, Gus, once again for the platform. Um, just basics. I think everybody covered a lot of ground uh, in this um, in this uh, call and really uh, a good show. Uh, first, uh, the comment, the uh, Bullworth snippet is excellent. Pretty much sums up exactly what the Democratic Party has been doing for <laughs> since its existence, from my understanding. Um, I could be wrong, but that's from my knowledge what I know. Basically, they make a bunch of promises, and then as soon as they get into office, based off of some of our votes, if it, if they do, they pretty much disregard us and do exactly what all the other parties and any other white supremacists do, which is subjugate us, um, which brings to mind what Dr. Henry Clark mentioned, which is we have no friends. Um, and to approach it like that is probably beneficial for us. Um, the commentary from about the uh, the march, the demonstration, uh, the white child, the white male wearing the Make America Great cap again, and it just it's really bad when they try to use words and try to make the comparisons, and then at the same time they're trying to justify this this white male's actions and all of them, because um, and because it wasn't just him there it was women, boys, and girls there that were white cheering and, and egging him on. And they tried to distract everything and throw it off by bringing in the so-called black Israelites into this as if it's their fault for the way that these white children were behaving. Um, which brings a connection with uh, Jada Pinkett and uh, VGQ, as you said before, um, on the whole commentary about trying to get white women to understand where they come from and white women have <laughs> white women are not confused about anything in this regard. And this is where the relationship really is important, where you see these young white males protesting and going out and make America great again. They're not old white men. Like the, the, the story starts to portray like, um, like Dr. Curry speaks about, which is, this is not coming from just white men as if these white, old white men are going to die off and then all of a sudden we'll have the end of racism and things will be more peaceful on the plantation. This is coming from white women. These are young children, their offspring that are preaching the same hate as their adult parents are. So teaching, educating white women is... I don't even know. It makes absolutely no sense. Again, VGQ, she's allowed to say whatever she wants to say. But if you put things into context and you see the relationship between these young children and then us trying to help and speak with white women as if they are subjugated the same way that we are, is it's just ridiculous. Um, and just a question, basically, for the mainly female listeners, have they found this to be the situation where they will among their white among their non-female friends do they find that other non-white females try to quote-unquote educate 
white women in this regard, or do they see their friends seeing as seeing white women as allies? Because I do feel that that contributes to a lot of the confusion that we deal with on a on a day to day basis when trying to understand racism, white supremacy. Um, with that said, I'll mute my line. Thank you for your time and energy. Peace. Uh, yes, sir. Much obliged. Uh, I guess this was directed at females. I can speak from the non-black, non-white females that I have met practicing yoga over the last year. Absolutely, unequivocally, yes, they think, oh yeah, and there might be some racism, but our white sisters are there for us, and white people in general, but yes, white sisters, absolutely, with non-black, non-white females and it seems that they have what does dr welsing say black get back yellow mellow brown stick around system of racism white supremacy the lighter you are you're not quite subjected to the same level of terrorism at least my observation it seems that racists are a little uh they are a bit more acceptable with having non-white people with less melanin not classified as black in their presence more frequently general observation other uh, he asked for females, so I guess they can share their views as we proceed. Other folks that we've missed completely, if you dialed in with a hand up and we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Any folks that we missed completely who have a hand up? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. How's it going, guys? Uh, greetings to everyone. I'm calling in regards to, I missed the clips, but I do have some workplace racism stuff, some stuff I've done over the week. Uh, I was able to see Dr. Tommy Curry in person. Uh, he did a speech in our city, um, a lecture. It was great. Um, seeing him there, the room was filled with uh, black people black males and black females. Um, everyone got along. And it seemed like everyone was receptive of his message. So I think that's good. Um, <clears throat> on another note, I was at work and I've noticed that on the job that white people are referring to me as brother a lot. So I could be on the computer doing work and I'll hear someone say brother or yo. And I guess just because the way I grew up, when I hear those words, I think someone's referring to me. So I tend to turn around because I'm, you know, I, it, it reminds me of being home. So I turn around and it's typically, and it's always a white person trying to get my attention. So I've noticed that white people, in order to get my attention, they're starting to say yo or brother. And uh, I've just stopped responding to that. And um, I just wait until they call my name or they like walk up on me specifically. But I'm starting to have white people say brother, like, you know, under their breath, like six to 10 feet away. And they're referring to me. I just find that whole situation very weird and suspect. Um, but also on the same job, you know, I work for the government. The shutdown has been interesting because the shutdown hasn't really affected us. 
So pretty much everyone in my department still gets paid because we're considered essential workers. And um, I've noticed that a lot of these, like uh, pretty much um, white males, white females, they don't actually care that Donald Trump has shut down the government. Um, the vast majority of them, they actually agree with it, um, especially with the border wall. Um, I know numerous um, higher level white people, multiple degrees, advanced degrees, engineers, scientists, they all agree with Donald Trump's border wall. So this is not just something that is just from lower class whites, powerful white people running military. They all agree with, uh, they pretty much agree with the sentiment of building the border wall. Um, I was sitting next to powerful whites, you know, running military operations and they're easily talking about um, the fact that they need to round up quote unquote illegals, put them in camps, deport them across the border or get them to work. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting to hear this kind of talk from these kind of white people considering like the jobs they do. So I would just tell, uh, you know, the black callers, the, you know, the listeners to be on guard that um, I think there's a large movement of whites that are looking for a Hitler-esque final solution. It may sound alarmist, but from what I, from what I understand, uh, a lot of these whites, they are fed up with the way America is being ran. And I think that they are being... Um, well, they, they've already been extremists, but I think it's getting to the level of where I'm hearing white people like openly call for putting people in concentration camps on the job. Um, so, and that is really all I would like to report. Thank you. I would definitely write that down in the workplace. That is, uh, mandatory immediately. And uh, I would take that really seriously if they're, if they're bold enough to say that in a work environment, uh, that it wouldn't be surprising if they became violent at some point. So I would take that very seriously. Um, yeah. Workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, that was exactly what I was thinking when you said that they were saying yo or bro to get your attention to just I would be thinking my new code. I will just not respond to that. I'll wait until they say my name correctly. And then I'll, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Can I help you? And see if that helps to break it. But that's that's so common, uh, addressing black people in that sort of tacky way. They break into whatever they think the, the latest Negro Ebonics uh, happens to be. And I can use all my Negro slang uh, when I go around and talk to the black employees. Just another act of... Uh, of racism. Uh, and I think just not responding, typically that can be enough. Uh, and, and even you observing that they're still, it seems, calling you bro under their breath, still got to do it in referencing you, bro, bro, the Negro. That's really what they mean when they're saying all that. Uh, and you can even ask, I was going to say this on workplace racism, anybody where you've noted that, because I think we've had people who say, uh, that, hey, what's up, pimp? calling you a pimp in the workplace, but they only do that for the black employee. All of that pimp, brother, sister, yo, homie, all of that. When you note that they don't address anybody else like that, you can ask real casual with a smile. Hey, Jonathan, can I ask you a question? I've noted that you call everyone else here by their name. It's only me that I get these interesting ghetto nicknames or shout outs bro homie 
pimp. Why is that? Question, what I always ask questions in the workplace. I would just ask that question. I guarantee, well, yeah, I pretty much guarantee uh, you're going to have a very high success rate. If you ask that one, they will stop most of them with, oh, my, yes, okay, fine. <laughs> Don't do that anymore. I think that alone would stop that behavior. Not that you need to. If you're not comfortable asking that question, that's fine too. But I think that would probably work if you know that they're only doing that for you or the black employees. Just ask, why is that? Have you noted that? Uh, workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Fridays, Fridays, workplace racism. Uh, other folks that we missed totally, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Any listeners that we have missed completely have a hand up that had commentary that we've not heard from? Can we heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, guys. Greetings to all the callers. Uh, this is in Yame in Nebraska. I, I just had a couple um, of things I wanted to contribute. Uh, I was one is on the subject of uh, metaphors, and I was looking to um, get clarity on the difference between you know metaphors, similes, analogies, and uh, euphemisms. I came across this website. Um, it's called Copy Blogger, and I think the article is. Yeah, the article is titled "Become a Master of Metaphor and Multiply Your Blogging Effectiveness," um, written by what appears to be a so-called white male. Um, it starts out quoting Aristotle: uh, "The greatest thing by far is to be a master of metaphor," and it, it goes into. Um, how metaphors is a powerful and persuasive tool. So um, I just thought that spoke to uh, how well-informed white people are about the effects of metaphors and being able to persuade people using them in order to uh, uh, win arguments or uh, presentations and such, as it states in the article. Um, also, there are several comments at the bottom. So uh, this article is actually written back in 2007. Um, it wasn't shared much, but a lot of people responded to it. So I know there's uh, a lot more white people aware of the effectiveness of metaphors and how to use them. And uh, also, um, on the subject of persuasiveness, recently there was a documentary aired at a Sundance Film Festival uh, titled Leaving Neverland, and it centers around the allegations against Michael Jackson for uh, child sex abuse. And it's told from the, the point of view of two of the accusers, two of his past accusers, but what I found interesting was they were so focused on the emotional aspect of the film that during the airing, which was about four hours, they took a break halfway through and actually had counselors there for the audience. Um, so I just, I just thought that was interesting. And uh, again, I think it speaks to how well they are informed on not only metaphors, but also ways to persuade people with their ideas. And that's all I have to contribute. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Wow. 
Much obliged for sharing. Listener out in the Nebraska area. Uh, I did not even know about the Michael Jackson documentary, but I definitely want to go to the Sundance Film Festival at some point to broadcast from there. Uh, that The timing of that, so all in the same time period, Bill Cosby conviction, R. Kelly comes up again, Michael Jackson documentary, white people, extraordinary package, toxic black masculinity. No good raping black males. They're just everywhere, all over the place, and need to be dealt with. And Michael Jackson, even now, they had a trial and all of that, and you still get the allegation. And he's been dead for 10 years now, and you still got the allegations, even from the grave, the threat that might, we got to take a break for a black male that's been dead for 10 years. We got to pause because he is so terrified. He has so traumatized us. We got to pause have a little counseling, and then we can proceed with how that vile, no good Michael Jackson sexually violated us. The man not, again, uh, listener said he got to see Dr. Curry. I'm glad. Lots of black people there. Bravo. The man not race class genre and the dilemmas of black manhood mentioned again. Uh, other folks have commentary that they wanted to uh, make sure they get in. Folks that we missed completely, anybody we missed totally have commentary they wanted to make sure they get in. I'll assume we got everyone. I'll give out the number one more time just in case. Please don't wait till the last minute. We have yeah, a little over 20 minutes. Uh, if you think you have a question, comment, suggestion, the number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks, uh, if yeah, you heard. yes, ma'am, Irie. Um, wanted to comment, um, uh, the documentary on Michael Jackson. I read on, um, <clears throat> his, um, Instagram page. There are Instagram accounts that, uh, sometime this year, uh, 1997, there was an earthquake in the San Bernardino, um, Valley that devastated the area tremendously, and Michael Jackson uh, donated washers and dryers um, and also passes to families to go to uh, Universal Studios for a mental respite um, while they um, proceeded with recovery of their, their homes and property. And I, I, I don't think it is coincidence that there's such a... Um, a viral um, attack on him and Mr. Cosby, because I, I also know Mr. Cosby um, throughout his time um, before he was in, in prison, he had a, a non, not-for-profit organization called Hello Friend that would give scholarships to um, anyone, but specifically um, he was targeting um, non-white people, non-white men, black men, um, to give them scholarships so they could be teachers because his son Ennis was murdered by a race soldier and could not fulfill his dream of becoming an educator um, after overcoming his disability 
uh, oh, well, he didn't fulfill his goal of um, becoming an educator after overcoming dyslexia. And so you have these non-white men contributing to society and non-white people in constructive ways, and yet we're harping on sexual proclivities, accusations, misinformation, et cetera, confusion. I'll move my line again. Thank you. Cowbell was uh, for the late Ennis Cosby. That was what the cowbell is for. Uh, folks can go back and research that case. I think Dr. Francis Cress Welsing uh, talked about that case quite a bit, uh, the death of Mr. Cosby's son. And I think in connection with the loss of their child, uh, Camille Cosby, she said, uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, uh, that folks needed to read his book, Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on Black America from 1960 to 1971, as a result of the death of Ennis Cosby, that influenced some of her thinking about literature that she would recommend. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, other folks have commentary they wanted to share? Hello. Not here. Oh, uh, go ahead, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I was um, looking into the situation with the young ladies in Binghamton. Well, since I was looking at the situation, I was looking to see if there are conduct rules, and I think that's important, just like with workplace racism, we should look at the HR rules. You should look in the school district to see if there are rules, and there are. And I guess what the young ladies may have been guilty of is called minor hallway and public space misconduct makes excessive, distracting, or disruptive movements or noises. I guess, you know, we're laughing in the lunchroom during lunch. That's what that is. I don't, that's the only thing I can see. And I don't see as a, they call it behavior supports and responses, I guess. I don't see anything involving stripping children. So make sure before your child goes to school, Whatever school district, if they're going to the public school or even if they're going to the private school, what are the rules of conduct and ask questions because I don't see anything on here about laughing being allowed. I saw teasing, but I didn't see laughing explicitly bringing a problem. And now you have to bring that up, laughing while black kid at school, I guess. Um, So be mindful of that if you have children. You're going to have children. Your friends have children. You know, things like that. Thank you. That policy sounds like there's so much discretion. Uh, I think that was Henry in Chicago, but uh, that policy just allows for so much discretion. Uh, Who's to say at what point the laughter or behavior is excessive or distracting? I mean... Wow, you can anybody you talked, you sneezed, and that sneeze was a little too loud. You know, you took a little too long to say. I mean, uh, it, when you well, clarify, I ask that, like I said, if, and if they can't give you a clear answer or something like that, I would bring it up to the newspaper or whatever. My child can't do this when they go to school, blah, 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 blah whatever. Yeah, check the policy and procedure on your job. And at your child's school, if they are in attendance, uh, I'll just say again, uh, it would be best to not have your child in that environment at all, 
you can plan all this out before conception. That's the way Dr. Welsing recommended, as opposed to all of this just being happenstance and you have to hope for the best. Uh, Henry in Chicago. Uh, yes, uh, <clears throat> two things. Uh, much black self-respect to Tamika Mallory, uh, the one who was pressured into denouncing Minister Farrakhan. She refused to do that. Uh, give her a lot of credit for that. Also, too, I wanted to, and I believe it was read in Nevada on Tuesday when you had the white woman uh, talking about the Hate You Give book. And uh, you mentioned this earlier about if you just let white people talk, they w their racism will come out. She asked a question about, uh, she asked a question to the white woman on what her favorite part of the book was. And I believe she said, when Khalil got killed by the police, I just, my mouth dropped. I know it's a metaphor, but uh, when she said that, and I thought that was a gem. So that's all I have. I'll mute my line. Jim is a metaphor too, but yes, that was important. Uh, the hate you give, uh, that was Red's question. She did say, Anne S. Michelson, all the way in Norway, not in Florida or Mississippi or Alabama, in Norway, by way of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, no less. Uh, yes, that was her favorite part of the book, The Death of the black male, the man, not race, class, genre, the dilemmas of black men and delectable Negro consuming Negro male corpses, carcasses. That is the whole culture of racism, white supremacy. Uh, other folks have commentary they wanted to share. Thomas in New York, yes, sir. Um, yes, um, I was going to say something about, um, you know, the Michael Jackson thing. And um, like you said, 10 years later, um, you know, Michael Jackson's child molestation, um, to me, this all goes to black people trying to own um, their rights. It's funny, in the music industry, they call the rights to owning your own music your masters. You know, black people owning their masters. Um, and I, just a just metaphor in that alone, you can see why white people, in my opinion, are, are so um, diligent about stopping that from happening. Uh, Michael Jackson owned his own music under My Jack um, Publishing, and then he owned 50% of Sony ATV's catalog. 30% of EMI's catalog because he allowed them to control the distribution of the MyJack catalog. So he owned essentially a huge percentage of the music industry. Uh, I believe Eminem gave an interview where he said he had to call Michael Jackson up to get songs released on his album because he was sampling music that Michael Jackson owned. Um, R. Kelly, um, after 25 years, gets to own his catalog this year and they're demonetizing his music everywhere, especially after this um, this whole thing came out with him. Um, Michael, um, um, Bill Cosby owned the rights to Abbott and Costello, the Three Stooges. Um, he owns a huge piece of um, what you would call white classic um, movies and television shows, which is why he was able to 
put in a bid to own his own television station. He had content. Um, they destroyed him. Um, now Chris Brown even just signed a deal where he owns all his masters now. And like two weeks later, he's brought up on rape charges. It's, it's like a continuous thing. Um, Prince went to court to Warner Brothers and made the right so every artist ever could get 25 years, they own their masters. And then two years to that day, he gets killed. Well, he dies in the elevator under um, circumstances that look suspicious. So um, it's something about that that white people just don't like. Um, it, it's, it's very um, disturbing. Um, the last thing I wanted to say, um, the gentleman just brought up the guest who called in. Uh, I thought that that, that that was my favorite point of the book. Part of the book was very um, telling um, as per how serious she was. And, um, just the the ongoing thing that white people do um, when they 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 come in like this is not what I came here to talk about. I didn't come here to talk about white supremacy. I came here to talk about. I was pretty much saying I came here to confuse you. Came here to deceive you and confuse you. And I'm just mad that you know you guys picked up on it. And I want to go. You know, and I I, I noticed that trend continuously. I mean, my line. Thank you, guys. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, great points. Black people owning content, their masters, as it were. Whites certainly not in approval of that at all. Uh, and that is a long running trend pattern uh, of racists uh, and them attempting to control, dominate the conversation and what's going to be discussed and what questions uh, they will answer uh, and trying to put forth some sort of rubric uh, about, well, I was asked to talk about this and this specifically, and I'm not going to address anything else because you all didn't even, you know, invite me to talk about that. We've had a number uh, who've done that, try to narrow, uh, to be very, very specific, very, very narrow focus for the conversation once they find out that they're not going to be able to confuse black people as easily. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary, question, counter-racist suggestion, uh, about 10 minutes or so left in the broadcast. Yeah, heard. Yes, sir. Yes, um, I guess um, continuing on with Miss um, Michelson's appearance, could you give me the spelling of the, the term you hypergamy? 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 Oh, man, I am not a spelling champion. Uh, H-Y-P-E-R G-A-M-Y taking a guess i think that's somewhere if you get if you google that that should at least get you close enough that you can find it if it doesn't i'll type it out myself and see if i can find it did you find it uh no not as yet i'll, I'll do that um once i get up there once i get up here okay dope that is, that's one thing I, I picked up from the University of Washington, the term uh, hypergamy, and picked it up within the context of discussing white supremacy racism with non-black, non-white students and professors. And the professor in this particular class uh, was married to a white man, and we were, that's how I got the word. We were talking about this context, that that is the trend of racism white supremacy in fact we went to go get a copy of an article they were talking about the uh that white people have studies the longer you stay in college the more likely it is that you will be in a quote-unquote interracial uh relationship 
hypergamy. Uh, other folks, uh, any other folks have commentary, questions they wanted to ask? Gus, can I add one other thing about metaphors? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. What I'm noticing when I go into the schools and I'm uh, teaching the English classes, there's really big uh, or really um, extensive emphasis on poetry. And it started to disturb me because the children um, in the schools I teach, you know, mostly non-white, whatever they are, but non-white, don't have um, fluency in basic conversation or basic reading and writing. They don't have that, um, they don't have those skills, yet they're making sure to inculcate them with metaphor and simile and so forth and so on. And half the time, the kids, they, they can't even write a, a, a sentence without run-ons or fragments, but you want them to write poetry. And I, I'm believing this is a, a, a skillful um, act of deception and confusion to further um kids, especially away from being, as we have stated, word masters. How can you expect a child that, that doesn't uh, understand what a prefix is to understand, you know, a meter in a line or a, a slant rhyme? That is illogical, incorrect, and an act of racism. Um, oh, and someone mentioned about non-white, non-black women. Um, educating white women. I don't see them educating white women. I see them um, laughing and talking with them as though they are trying to relate to the white women, not get the white women to relate to them. Um, because as as you said, um, if you're brown, stick around. So they're, they're trying to be like, they're trying to emulate them. They're not trying to educate. Thank you. I'll meet my line. Great point about the use of words. That's definitely been an observation. My tenure hosting uh, the cows and doing a book club. I think uh, that a lot of us racists have done a phenomenal job with poor quality schooling and their suspensions and everything else. Uh, where a lot of us, we just have a terrible experience in school, a, ter a terrible relationship to learning with new American classics like The Hate You Give. Uh, and we just, you know, reading is just not a skill that we have refined. And that can have really tragic consequences with regards to understanding the language and the use of skillful use of words and even thinking. You generally think with words or many people do. Words, word skill can be helpful with clearer thinking. Uh, but yeah, that's a huge problem. I would even submit probably a reason why there aren't more black people who look at the hate you give as potentially worst book ever. I think uh, I could be incorrect about that. But yeah, I think if you have honed skills, reading comprehension, I think you would see that pretty easily, that that is a wretched piece of literature. Any uh, final comments before we conclude? Hey, guys, one more thing, sir. Um, and I might have mentioned this story last week. Um, 
But uh, it goes to Mr. Fuller's point that the homosexual agenda, the LGBT agenda, will change everything. Um, now, two white women were in a restroom at a bar, and I believe a white transgender came in the restroom, and um, they were not sure if it was a male or a female, so they grabbed to see, um, and um, they were charged with sexual assault. Um, now, um, I put myself in the shoes of being a father and having young daughters, and um, at times when my daughters were younger, having to wait outside the restroom for them, hoping that, you know, they were okay in the bathroom because I'm not able to go in there with them. And if I saw a man dressed like a woman, a Bruce Jenner, you know, about to enter the restroom, I might have a problem with that. You know, I might say, bro, you got to wait until my daughters leave. You know, like I, I probably would end up on the wrong side of the law if that was to happen. So um, it goes to the point that Mr. Fuller made, and I think it's pretty turning out to be very accurate that this um, LGBT thing is going to change everything. Uh, I, I mute my line. It's so thankful. When you were given that illustration, which I thought was totally logical, I don't have uh, children, but I thought that's logical as a parent. Uh, but when you were sharing that and you said, you know, if I saw this person, Bruce Jenner, going into the restroom where my daughter is there, say, hey, bro. I said, they might even turn around and be like, hey, I'm not, get your pronouns correct. I don't even, <laughs> not a he, not a bro. It's, uh, they have a whole list of new pronouns, and it's LGBTQAI. They just keep adding letters. I saw it the other day, and they had added a few new letters that I hadn't even seen before. They just continue to add to the confusion. Hypergamy, H-Y-P-E-R-G-A-M-Y. Hypergamy. The first definition when I did a search term used in social science for the act or practice of a person marrying a spouse of a higher caste or social status than themselves. System of rice, uh, racism, white supremacy, anything going away from black is up. Uh, any final comments, folks? Content for the evening? Everyone satisfied? Grant, uh, we will be here uh, minimum Thursday. Uh, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, session number three, uh, Workplace Racism Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Again, I mailed out the information uh, for the yoga retreat. Uh, it's been two days now at this point. Uh, if you would like information, if you mailed me at any point uh, about the yoga retreat, I think you should have been included when I sent out the mass email. If you mailed me previously and you did not get the email, just untiljustice at gmail.com, write me again and I will make sure you get it. If this is the first that you're hearing of it or you think, hey, yoga retreat's going to be in Virginia. Hmm, I would like more details. Send me an email until justice at gmail.com. I will send you the information. Uh, if we have uh, enough folks, February 21, we will be doing the Cow's 10 year anniversary yoga retreat. Uh, with that, much obliged to all the folks for participating. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. 
uh, racist. They brutalize a lot of black people anyway. I would think it would behoove us to be able to think at our best so that we can make phenomenal decisions and think of new concepts to solve permanently the problem, racist man, racist woman, racist child. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let's do all that we can to avoid Daniel Holtzclaw, racist man, racist woman, badge or no. In fact, I saw a report today. I didn't include it in the audio clips because they didn't have a video segment, but there was a white man. He was arrested. He pulled out a baseball bat. He was threatening a black person. And he said, in fact, before he went to get his baseball bat, he said, uh, I'm going to get my nigger knocker. I laughed. It it disrupted my whole planning. If you've been listening to the cows, 10 year anniversary, suspected race soldier, Norm Stamper. That is exactly what he said. And that right there says a lot that you have whites using the same type of terminology in describing instruments of violence a nigger knocker that this is a term that apparently is in wide use and across large periods of time because norm stamper he said he uh used this term uh it was in i believe the 70s when he was on the program 2010 i just read this article today where a white man was arrested for he got a baseball bat threatened called him a nigger and all the rest of it let me get my nigger knocker and then he went to get his baseball bat so Racist man, racist woman, racist child, minimize contact, buckle up. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, Each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.